This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. frequency um we're we're gonna take a jump back over the anti-fascist protection barrier um over to the east side if you will uh to follow up on some things that we've uh dove into a little bit in the last few episodes like in the day of the dolphin and i think even in idris shah and um a lot of um yeah, and our The Target Is Your Brain episode a little bit. Oh, absolutely, The Target Is Your Brain, yeah. And so I think this is one we've been, like, teasing, uh, or it's just, it's found relevance in, like, almost every episode. Uh, even when I, I don't think it's going to come up, it does. And uh, so today we are going to, like, try to do a proper dive into the fascinating wild world of Soviet parapsychology. And I guess our uh, broad uh, category, but an yeah, extremely broad couple, category. Yeah. I, I, I don't even think we'll be able to kind of get to maybe all of the case studies today. And that that's mm-hmm. OK. Um, we'll, we'll pick out some of the more, um, I don't know, interesting ones. But it is a really fascinating subject. And I guess um, it's one that it's kind of hard to get a ton of um, reading material on. And really, I think what even spurred it in the first place was uh, several years ago at the um, uh, the very nice uh, last bookstore in downtown Los Angeles, I was sort of uh, going through one of their cavernous sections on the occult and conspiracies and... Uh, uh, different kind of like spiritualism marginality. They had a little category there and in sandwich between a bunch of like original print Scientology books and things by L. Ron Hubbard, I found this book called The New Soviet Psychic Discoveries, a firsthand report on the latest breakthroughs in Russian parapsychology by Henry Griss and William Dick, who were both journalists for the National Enquirer. And um, this book basically documents 
their several trips they made to the Soviet Union um, at the, uh, I guess, you know, in acquiescence or invitation of the government uh, to come and interview a variety of scientists, uh, mystics, seers, healers, mentalists, etc., and interview them about the research that they were doing. And I think they, they went in 19, I think between, um, 1976 and 1977, they made several trips there. And, um, I didn't finally finish the book until we were about to do this episode, but it's something I picked up over the last couple of years and kind of flipped through. And, um, it's a pretty it's a pretty wild ride uh, to see like how into parapsychology um, it seemed that you know high level scientists and fringier scientists uh, were you know the level they were into in the Soviet Union during kind of the Brezhnev years and um, and also that they would give such access to these like National Enquirer reporters. I mean, honestly. I, I was reading it, I think, uh, this the last parts of the book and kind of wondering, like, what's what's kind of really going on here yeah, on both sides? Like, like a limited Soviet hangout, like, for these dudes, uh, I would imagine. But, you know, I mean, there could have been something on the other side as well. But I feel like if it was, like, yeah, come here and you can interview, like, our psychics, like, that's going to be probably pretty carefully managed to an extent yes yes as, as most uh kind of professional trips to the soviet union were at that time um yeah. this is something that uh i know we've experienced a little bit in visiting like property properly capital c uh communist countries is that um the tours are very kind of stage managed and um curated in a way and even though it sounds like the kind of tour these guys were on was like a little bit more loose um it wasn't um say compared to a place like the dprk um where it's like you really have like a tour program but they they did have uh this minder natasha from the novosti press agency who kind of guided them around and like helped make their appointments and arranged all their hotels and stuff so they uh they weren't just kind of like floating around the soviet union they had to have kind of like uh appointments and authorizations and they were kind of lightly uh kept tabs on and there are a few people they met with um and some people who they would like repeatedly ran into in like hotel lobbies who they suspected maybe were, you know, working for the KGB and kind of keeping an eye on them. But the KGB base, I mean, the, the Soviet government basically let them leave uh, the USSR with all kinds of photographs and papers and evidence of various kinds, a lot of which is uh, included in this book and didn't seem to have a huge problem with them taking it back and publishing it in the West. Now, that. They mention at the end of this book that that started to change maybe around 1977 when um, there was a uh, there was an L.A. Times reporter who kind of got like caught up in what seemed maybe like a KGB sting where a scientist tried to give him um, an L.A. Times reporter named um, I think it was William Toth in 1977 
And um, I'm sorry, Robert Charles Toth was an L.A. Times guy who was like the Moscow correspondent. And he was given these parapsychology papers by some scientists who like uh, who like insisted on meeting him outside of his apartment. And like immediately, like a bunch of KGB guys jumped out and like arrested him for like taking classified information. And eventually it was sort of like negotiated. He was allowed to leave the country and whatever. But after that, um, a lot of these parapsychology people in the West noticed that at like international conferences in Europe on both sides of uh, the Iron Curtain um, that delegations from like Moscow and Soviet delegations in general like dropped off tremendously and they believe that that was because uh, perhaps the they became more aware that parapsychology was a thing that was you know rapidly being weaponized and looked into in the West and you know, it, it, it fully be, I mean, it, it seemed like they were always aware of kind of potential military defense um, applications for this type of research, but they went from being kind of uh, curiously open about sharing it with certain Westerners to kind of shutting it down and saying, okay, this is secret and we're not going to, you know, share this stuff with you anymore. So, um, but I mean, the overall impression of the book gives is that they did take it seriously. So I don't, I'll say right from the outset that even though I think there was maybe with some of these cases, like I wouldn't rule out any kind of, um, like maybe Soviet psyop kind of going on or like a disinfo kind of, uh, operation at play. But I think that, uh, I don't think the entire trip and everything they saw here was like a Potemkin uh, parapsychology village of psyops that were all bullshit. I think that there was genuine interest and resources and some very highly trained uh, intelligent scientists working on a lot of these issues and in yeah, some cases sure. taking them very um, sincerely seriously. Definitely, definitely. In the same way that they were being taken seriously in the United States. Uh, yes. You know, yeah, for sure. Um, absolutely, yeah, definitely. I would say so as well. Yeah, yeah. And um, there, there's one other book that um, th- it's really... This book, the book that I got was kind of the more obscure of the two. Um, the other one that's a little more accessible, if anybody is curious and wants to go on archive.org, there's a copy of it you can borrow. It's called Psychic Discoveries Behind the Iron Curtain by Sheila Ostrander and Lynn Schroeder, which came out in 1971. And this was the first book to really publicize this topic that the Soviets were deeply interested in psychic phenomena, ESP, hypnosis, um, you know, uh, uh, telekinesis, um, remote viewing, things like that. And um, we also found a kind of interesting, I think it was a Canadian TV show that was hosted by a guy named Kreskin. I'd never yeah. heard of him before, but he's like, he was I like a... he was a magician. Um, I guess he was a magician, kind of a celebrity yes. magician who had like a talk show where he would do various kind of uh, experiments like in front of the crowd or he would do like clairvoyance or mind reading displays and things like that. And um, he had Lynn Schroeder and Sheila Ostrander on to like talk about their book. And they, it seems like they covered, I didn't get to read the whole book, but it seems like they cover, a they visited with a lot of the same people when they traveled uh, to the Soviet Union. I think they also went to Czechoslovakia and uh, maybe Hungary and Poland as well. 
and because there were there was research going on there. I think also Bulgaria, and um, they were pretty. I mean, the, the, oh, all these like seventies journalists that went over there were pretty impressed. I would say and felt like they had seen some sort of real stuff. They even show a video in that, and you can find it on YouTube. We'll put it in the workflowy um, where they show a video of one of these um, one of these uh, women who in, in Moscow I forget what her exactly what her name was. There were several. Um, it might have been Varvara Ivanova. Um, don't quote me on that. But they showed a video that appeared to show her using telekinesis to move objects around on a table. Um, with like her mental energy or with some kind of psychic force field. And of course, you know, I mean, we've all seen stage magic. There's a million ways you could probably fake that, but they seem to think that this video was authentic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Kreskin seemed like he was intrigued by the subject, but a little bit uh, skeptical. <laughs> Um, of, he, like the actual, he, yeah, he, he like, also sort gives of, sort of a funny warning at the end of it that says that, that kind of warns that, you know, the Soviets, like they are probably making strides in these things, but he said, doesn't he say something about like, but they don't have a belief in God. And so he th- they're like doomed to fail like, you know, or something. Good Lord willing or whatever. Uh, I don't know. Like, did he say something bad? Like they don't have a belief in God. I don't remember that part, but I might've skipped over it. I think uh, he implied I, that these scientists were because they were athe- officially atheists that um, perhaps the, you know, the, the development of these kind of techniques in the Soviet union was something kind of dangerous that we should keep an eye on or something mm-hmm. ominous. And then all these books, I think to some, degree i mean you know these these two women kind of brag about how their book has been banned in the soviet union and i think he says something along the lines of like oh well that's like that's a mark of distinction you know um which is yeah. just you know whenever i roll um maybe they just yeah, didn't want a like, lot of you know uh, very they lay it on thick as like a lot of like books do at this time you know you could compare it to like post 9 11 uh, books about like anything in the Islamic world, whether it's just these big generalizations about, you know, the psychology of like Russian culture or whatever, mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, yeah. Yeah. And th- there's definitely a fair amount, not, not totally unjustified of really, uh, uh getting a, maybe a little bit essentialist about like the, Ru- the, the mystic, uh, fascinations of the Russian people. Yeah. Like yeah, they're, you I know, mean, the Russians are mystical people. They always have. Right. Been. Yeah. And they definitely had that as an emphasis in the, uh, um, you know, the, the psychic discoveries behind the Iron Curtain, Ostander, uh, and Schroeder's book. Um, but, uh, yeah, like it, uh, it, it could, you could see it as kind of like a counterpoint to, uh, the perception of them as being sort of atheistic. You know, they really harp on, the kind of opposition between like science and religion like as uh you know maybe something that these esp phenomena like sit in between somehow so Mm -hmm. like you know i feel like the you know they had this one kind of uh line where they say like the old mystic russia is still present you know like conjuring of your images of like the old believers with these big long like scraggly beards and whatnot which like you know or like rasputin Rasputin. yeah Yeah, you know like uh 
So yeah, like they, uh, but it's, it's been sort of, uh, redirected into, uh, science instead of like, you know, actual like religious uh, institutions or anything like that. But there's still like, uh, this kind of mystical, I mean, as I may have mentioned on the podcast before, like mysticism is one of my least favorite words because it's incredibly vague. Uh, mm-hmm. and like, it doesn't re- like, you know, what does that mean to say that like, okay, they're still mystical, but whatever. But anyway, like, uh, and often like. Yeah, it has this kind of, like, weird loaded signification that's, like, yeah, very, like, not helpful, especially, like, in any kind of, like, scholarly context, although this isn't necessarily what this is. This is more of, like, a popular book and people kind of understand. But uh, anyway, yeah, so, like, uh, yeah, there's a weird, like, uh, intro to that book, um, to uh, Ostander and Schroeder's book which is by this guy, Ivan T. Sanderson. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. know what his deal is, but I guess he's a biologist because he mentions it. Um, and he has some weird kind of remark about how uh, Marxist philosophy is, like, biologically inaccurate. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't really know, like, what that is, but he touches on a lot of themes uh, that, like, we've brought up on the uh, podcast before. Like, you know... Uh, the concept of the West uh, as being mm-hmm. like, uh, yeah, I can uh, read some of what he says. I'm just trying to see if I missed like where he clarifies like what exactly he means by saying that Marxism is uh, biologically inaccurate, but mm-hmm. I'm not sure if, uh, I, uh, if he actually clarified what it was. Uh, I don't think so. But anyway, uh, is this so, yeah, uh, he, is this in the intro to uh, Psychic Discoveries Behind the Iron Curtain? Yeah, yeah, that yeah. Said? It's, yeah, it's he the, does. I think it's at the very end of his intro. Let me see if I can. Um, at the very end, he says it, but he doesn't explain why it's biologically inaccurate. Yeah, but he, he says he gives a very kind of detente friendly sort of thing, uh, almost giving giving the Soviets like a little bit of credit and saying that like as as barbaric and like totalitarian as like Marxism has been in the 20th century. Like perhaps this was a necessary stage for humanity to go through in casting aside so many of like the old ideas and trying to look at things like dialectically. It's it's actually an interesting, yeah, let me read a couple of uh, passages from him because it's interesting kind of uh, insight into kind of like the attitude towards Marxism that like prevailed at the time because he really has to like hedge what he says. Uh, Anyway, yeah, so first let me read this part because I think this is interesting in light of, like, ideas of, like, the West. Like, we talked about in our Target is Your Brain uh, Mm -hmm. episode, like, how, you know, in that uh, documentary, uh, you know, they refer to the idea of the West. And here he actually talks about it as a a new idea, which is interesting. Um, So uh, he says, of course, the major trouble is that, as I said at the outset, we don't have any generally accepted word for these items as a class, talking about, like, psychic phenomena or, like, paranormal stuff. Though, as a matter of fact, we do have a perfectly good one, which unfortunately has not gotten into any dictionary. The designation is, of course, Fortiana, uh, but I won't go any further into this at the moment. Rather, we should try to straighten out another aspect of all this business that is equally pertinent, namely just where the author's researches were prosecuted. This is the new concept of, quote, the West, now so beloved of political writers. Despite its now almost universal use, this, too, has not yet gotten to the dictionaries. While even, the admo- ad- while even advanced students of international affairs appear not to have the foggiest notion as to how to define the term, geographically, that is. Mm-hmm. The world of humanities they divide into eight major blocks. These are basically geographic, but the vast majority of human inhabitants of each form a compact ethnic majority. 
these blocks are one uh, the west uh, sorry the western Eurasia plus North America eastern Eurasia namely the Slavic domain plus Siberia uh, three the Near East uh, being the Mohammedan world from Morocco to West Pakistan north to south of the Slavic border uh, West Pakistan you know like not the west of what is today Pakistan but like you know back then there was East Pakistan but anyway like mm-hmm. uh, you know was Bangladesh uh, north of the South Slavic border and south of the Ethiopian block. The Middle East, or the subcontinent of India, very weird as well to see uh, India being referred to as the Middle East. Uh, <laughs> like, you know, but this is like, it's interesting. Yeah, how these, these categories are yeah. <laughs> interesting. The Far East being all that lies east of the Great Mongolian Fold, which runs northeast from the Pamirs to Amuria, together with Indochina, Indonesia, and Micronesia, Australia with Papua and Polynesia, Latin America, uh, south of the Rio Grande, and Ethiopia and Africa. Of course, uh, there are endless human minority groups in each block. Uh, But anyway, so each of these eight major blocks has an overall approach to life that is now quite distinct, and each appears to look at its world, the world generally, and life as a whole in a noticeably different way. Then there is another thing. This is that there is really a West-West, a Middle-West, and an East-West, and that North America is, apart from sharing basically the same language with a Middle-West country, i.e. United Kingdom and Great Britain, just as different uh, in outlook from the Middle-West as that block is from the East-West. Disregarding politics and religion, the three Wests, being North America, Western Europe, and Slavonic or Eastern Europe, form a composite cultural block despite their tripartite internal differences. In fact, we three are already in the same bed, and we might as well make up our minds to lie in it. Uh, so, yeah, this is actually kind of interesting, and it goes into a little bit of uh, some race science uh, eugenics going on uh-huh. here. Uh, if the authors of the book had visited any block other than the Slavic, they would probably never have written any book for the simple reason that only in that sphere have scientists and technologists approached these matters in the way described in these books. Even the Australians, who are Caucasians, take it, you know, <laughs> we've heard of this before, right? Like, uh, I think in yeah. the Urantia book, uh, uh-huh. they were talking about one of the aliens in the Urantia book was talking about why, you know, interbreeding between white people and Polynesians worked out because uh, they were of good sort of stock or whatever. But anyway, mm-hmm. take an entirely different approach, as are the Latin Americans. Among the latter, there are today many brilliant scholars working in this field, but they have, and perhaps naturally, been greatly influenced in their approach by the racial majority of their population, which is still Amerindian, a race who, and quite apart from any language barriers left, are mentally almost incomprehensible to any Westerner. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, so this is, like, kind of the whole, like, detente idea, like, you know, we, uh, yeah. you know, must, I think he says, like, if we together. must, if we must, like, coexist with, like, Soviet man, we would do well to understand him, or something like that, right? Yeah, uh, this is, like, where he ends, uh, very bizarre, like, it's just so odd, this guy's a, bi- a biologist writing in 1970, uh, anyway, so, he, this is, like, a, a more relevant part, maybe, about, uh, his uh his ideas on uh esp mm-hmm. um so he writes uh um paranormal if you like but why equate these discoveries with psychology which isn't a science and may in <laughs> fact not really exist per se being nothing more than our gropings into ethology behaviorism and chemophysical mental processes what the inventors of this word actually meant was paraphysics and should have uh and should this have been adopted at the outset both the stigma of this damn word psycho would have been eliminated and some true scientific investigation possibly initiated. 
The same may be said even more forcibly regarding this expression extrasensory perception. These crypto-physical matters are indeed extra, or outside the crypto-spiritual, i.e. psychic or psycho, but they actually lie solidly within the physical. Even worse, however, is the rest of this silly term. Why only perception? It includes a lot more than perception, and apart from also, sendi uh, uh, from also sending or disseminating, even SSP, or super-sensory perception, would be better, but this once again implies a necessary biological link, while all these things probably still exist, even where there is no living thing, as we define life, around. But ESP has now become a catchphrase for just about everything that either religion nor science can explain. So there you go. Uh, both mm -hmm. the crypto-spiritual and the crypto-physical. These are, like, bizarre terms that he's made up that he explains earlier on, but, you know. Uh, separate, or, uh, yeah. Separate these two fields... And you will find that you have, on the one hand, matters purely of the mind, like the religious concepts, mathematics, ontology, and other intangibles. On the other hand, a seething mass of tangibles, such as are discussed in this book, and which are most susceptible to scientific and technological inquiry. If only we would initiate such. The only real mystery lies in that we have not yet pinned them down, and for the most part we do not yet know how they work, or even on what principles, while in the biological field we have not yet found the organs in the living bodies which, uh, through which they do work. We ought by now, however, to have enough to convince even Western scientists that there is nothing mystical, spiritual, or above all psychic about any of them. Perhaps in the long run, and from the purely historical point of view, it is just as well that Marx's philosophy, as biologically inaccurate as it may originally have been, did arise. Uh, and so he says, like, you know, please understand me, exclamation point, you know, like anticipating people being like, what? Like, I do not equate this with Leninism, Stalinism, Maoism, or any other political or religious matter. Not only Western, but Eastern, African, Indian, and every other type of thought was getting bogged down at the end of the last century. It needed a good jolt. One does not wish to be impolite, but speaking as a biologist, increasing knowledge of our environment and of ourselves cried out for a dissembly of a lot of traditions. Right or wrong, necessary or not, revolution in intellect is just as necessary as it is biologically. It hurts just as much. Without it, maybe <laughs> we, like so many millions of other species of living creatures, would have already just died away. Be all this philosophizing as it may, the point I am trying to make is that, as a result of the intellectual climate, in their block, the Slavs of the East-West have tackled Fortiana in a completely different way from us in the West-West, and the results, as described in this book, will probably be quite shocking to all West-Western readers, while they may shake up some of the Middle Westerns a bit too. So please read on. Um, yeah, well, so, uh, I would just like to... I, I would just like uh, to take credit right now... Um, because it's clear that the only reason we're doing this episode and are interested in all these topics is because of my essential Slavic character. Yeah. So <laughs> everyone is, you're all welcome. Um, yes. Um, <laughs> my innate, uh, the mysticism uh, contained in my DNA um, is uh, propelled this obsession, yes. clearly. Um, well, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I have quite mm. a, you know, uh, a rarefied uh, soupçon of uh, ethnic uh, backgrounds as well. Uh, but I guess, you know, uh, yeah, I guess the yeah, the good news is that at least uh, our, uh, you know, racial makeup isn't incomprehensible to each other. <laughs> um, <laughs> or, yeah. Anyway, uh, I'm glad we can comprehend. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that 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 is kind of the the detente um era 
context that I think a lot of these things were being explored in. Yeah. So like that, simultaneously. Fair, yeah, it's just like the forward, you know, like the endorsement of the book by like some guy who didn't actually write it. The rest of the book isn't as crazy as that. But yeah, that's still like something that hangs heavy over this. I mean, they did invite that guy to write the introduction. They're like, yeah, let's publish this. Like that sounds <laughs> sounds good. You know, like. Uh, yeah, that might have been um, what got them banned uh, is that introduction. Um, yeah. <laughs> talking fast and loose about. Um, yeah the uh, collective Slavic uh, imagination. Um, but, you know, I think there is a, uh, there's a grain of truth there. And I think we'll, we'll hit on this in a lot of these case studies we're about to get to where the dry, like it's surprising in a lot of these cases that they are doing this in a kind of materialistic, like Marxist Leninist compatible scientific framework, like exploring all these parapsychological, uh, psychological phenomena. But they also do have this kind of innate, um, kind of ambient, um, interest in what you might call like kind of mystical things. And, and in a weird way, in a lot of yeah. cases, what they end up doing is kind of almost validating, uh, phenomenologically validating religious phenomena, but giving some kind of scientific explanation for it. So it's like they're simultaneously like debunking like superstition and religion, but also like scientifically validating it at the same time. So there's well, like this I interesting yeah, interplay going on. Yeah, what's almost more interesting is that, like, you know, I, I mean, I think that there are certain statements and, like, comments that, like, some of the subjects of this uh, research makes that, that shows that it was a preoccupation on the Soviet end, but it also shows that it's a preoccupation on, like, the end, uh, like, the American end. Like, this whole discourse around, and like you said, like, uh, I missed, like, Kreskin's remark, but he did, like, you know, make a very dramatic, uh, that I did hear, like, say, like, the good Lord willing, like, at the end, you know, we will understand these things, you know, like, so there is this, like, preoccupation with, like, the sort of dichotomy of science and religion and, like, Soviet versus, uh, you know, West-West or, like, American, you know, yeah. and, like, how that maps onto the other dialectic of religion and science and, uh, this whole topic of parapsychology or, like, whatever, you know, you want to call it, ESP, mm -hmm. uh, the paranormal is, like, a battlefield where, like, these whole things are being these this whole thing is being litigated and, like, is always simmering under the surface. Yeah, uh, and, and it's definitely also spoken of repeatedly in a kind of context of, like, the space race and the race for nuclear weapons and, in general, like, they're almost setting it up or, um, you know, postulating that maybe this is the next battleground of the kind of technological competition between the two great powers. Like we've done, we've done nuclear weapons, we've done, you know, rocketry, we've gone to space, we had the space race, which had kind of like cooled off, um, in, you know, by the mid seventies. And now like, this is the next plane, uh, is going to be a battle for the mind. And there's even, you know, there, there's, you know, in the promotional <clears throat> materials for these books, so like on their, you know, dust jackets and stuff, they do, there's a lot of like scary, like the Russians have found like the newest method of traveling into your mind. Like, you know, yeah. that kind of, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Yeah.
I mean, do we want to maybe start to like dive into the different personalities a little bit that are uh, uh, profiled in both of these books? Uh, yes. Um, there's a lot of like uh, good material, um, like kind of relevant to what uh, we were uh, just talking about, like uh, or and and uh, relative to like some of the other subjects we've we've tackled. Uh, one of the uh, good chapters. I mean, maybe the chapter, uh, it seems like uh, the book that you have, which I don't actually have a copy of, uh, might be uh, a little bit more interesting. So maybe like, you know, uh, there's some good wolf messing stuff in there, but there is a good chapter yeah. in the Ostander and Schroeder book about UFOs. I don't know like how much. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, th there's UFOs. there's a bunch of UFO yeah. stuff in this book um, that which we can uh, get to with like Dr. Felix Siegel and uh, the club of fantasts and uh, yeah, all that stuff. I mean, do there's, you want to start, do we want to start with messing or do you want to? Yeah, uh, we can start with messing. I think that we had talked about doing that. So we should stick to that plan. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Cause we yeah. could go, the UFO stuff goes in like uh, a lot of different directions yeah, yeah, and yeah. it's really, really fascinating. Right. Yeah. There's this one dude, I don't know if you read about him, but there's one dude who I think like, it seems like he actually got to the whole idea of, like, ancient aliens, like, uh, before the famous uh, guy, like, Von Daniken, uh, or Daniken, however you pronounce his name, the Chariots of the Gods uh, person, mm. uh, Zaitsev. Uh, oh, Zaitsev, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, word. but we should talk about Wolf Messing first, because he's, like, you know, a very famous uh, psychic, uh, kind of like a, a stage figure uh you know uh, like a public uh telepathist kind of like a yuri geller type dude but yeah a lot of interesting attested powers uh and stalin apparently was a fan of his yes uh, there's a pretty dramatic story uh, which we were going over earlier um so like wolf grigorievich messing was uh actually polish but then he, he was jewish he was, uh, yeah, he was a Polish Jew. That's what yeah. he was. He was from, um, like, uh, one of those little, uh, like, shettles, I think. Like, uh, kind of like a shulker. Yeah, outside of, outside of Warsaw. Um, yeah. Gura Kalvaria. Um, and he, uh, I guess he fled to the Soviet Union um, at the outset of when the Nazis invaded in 1939. Um, and basically ended up, I guess, was, uh, he had, he claimed that, you know, he, he developed his psychic abilities early in life and he was performing from the time he was a teenager um, to basically. So I think he was about like he was about 40 when World War Two started. And somehow when he was in the Soviet Union, he was doing stage shows. And then do you want to recount like the little anecdote you told me about like oh, what happened yeah. to him? This is as it's told uh, by, again, Ostender uh, and Schroeder. Um so, right in the middle of a sellout theatrical performance, uh, two green uniformed Soviet police suddenly stalked on stage. We're sorry, they told the audience in the Belarusian city of Gomel, uh, but the show was over. Then they hustled the star performer, telepathist Wolf Messing, into a waiting car and sped off to an unknown destination. It was 1940, a time when people were often carried off by the police to disappear forever, with no reason given and no questions asked. Uh, but what about my hotel bill and my trunk? Messing asked. Uh, you know, the trunk wouldn't be needed and the hotel bill was settled. The secret police indicated, uh, we arrived somewhere. I didn't know where, says Messing. I was led into a room. It seemed to be a hotel. After some time, I was led into another, I was led into another room. A man with a mustache came in. Uh, the psychic wolf Messing was face to face with Stalin. 
Um, so <laughs> no, he's gonna get uh, he's gonna get shot because you know Stalin yes. doesn't believe in in mysticism. No. Yes. Uh, but wait, what was what happening happens? in Poland and what were the plans of Polish leaders? Stalin wanted to know. Stalin wasn't asking for a psychic reading. He was asking for personal information about some of the psychic's influential Polish friends. He would test Messing's psychic gifts later. Wolf Messing was no ordinary mentalist, but a celebrated psychic who traveled the world, had been tested by such luminaries as Einstein, Freud, and Gandhi, and had hobnobbed with people in high places. So first off, he was like, what do you know about, like, the inside politics of Poland, you know? Uh, Good, but, yeah, yeah. Stick, yeah. Into the, stick to just the facts yeah, yeah, yeah. to start um, yeah, and uh, apparently, like, uh, the reason why he fled the Nazi invasion of Poland was because Hitler had put, like, a uh, uh, 200,000 mark price on his head. Wow. Um, because he predicted uh, Hitler's uh, death, I guess. Really? Um, oh. Yes. Oh, okay. uh, he, yeah, he made a prediction uh, that, uh, you know, Hitler would, would die. And I think he even predicted that Soviet tanks would roll into Berlin. Wow. Uh, on, according to this book but yeah anyway so uh yeah so then stalin uh put him to a bunch of tests um but uh, apparently he passed them all with flying colors uh so stalin commanded a straightforward horrendous trial of messing's talent he was to pull off a psychic bank robbery and get a hundred thousand rubles from the moscow goss bank where he was unknown I walked up to the cashier and handed him a blank piece of paper torn from a school notebook, says Messing. He opened an attache case and put it on the counter. Then he mentally willed the cashier to hand over the enormous sum of money. The elderly cashier looked at the paper. He opened the safe and took out 100,000 rubles. Messing stuffed the banknotes into the case and left. Uh, he joined Stalin's two official witnesses in charge of the experiment. After they had attested the experiment had been satisfactorily performed, Messing returned to the cashier. As he began handing him the packages of banknotes, the cashier looked at him, looked at the blank piece of note paper on the desk, and fell to the floor with a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, it wasn't fatal, says Messing. Um, yeah. So uh, then, basically, he asked him, we put him in a locked room with a bunch of security guards and said, like, you know, you're, uh, don't allow him to escape. And Messing was able to just, you know, walk out somehow. Um, and, uh, you know, then as he left out, he like waved to the people as he was leaving. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yes, like, uh, and here's like, you know, kind of a reference, uh, into this whole, uh, you know, like, uh, the dialectic that we've been discussing. We thought a lot of things about Stalin, but never that he was a psychic researcher. These extraordinary accounts weren't smuggled out of Russia in a whisper. The Soviets themselves published them in an important journal, Science and Religion, as part of Messing's autobiography about myself. The mere fact that they passed both the political censors and the official atheistic policy of this influential magazine is in itself good evidence for their validity. In About Myself, Messing remarks he had many encounters with Stalin. Communist scientists who know the celebrated psychic, as well as friends of one of Stalin's granddaughters, told us of another experiment designed by Stalin. Without permission, without a pass, Messing had to enter Stalin's daicha at Kunsevo. This was like asking someone to dress up as Batman and saunter unmolested into the vaults of Fort Knox. Guards almost as thick as a shrubbery surrounded the country house. A platoon of bodyguards hovered near Stalin. All the staff members at his residences were officially members of the secret police. Several days later, as Stalin worked in his daicha at a large dining table loaded with official documents and papers, a slightly built, dark-haired man entered the daicha without attracting any special attention. Stalin's bodyguards stood back respectfully. The domestic staff made way. The man walked down a hallway past several rooms, all furnished identically with a sofa, rug, and table. He stopped at the doorway of the room where Stalin sat reading. Stalin looked up astonished. Wolf Messing stood in front of him. How did he do it? 
Uh, this is a great <laughs> thing. I mentally suggested to the guards and the servants, I am Beria. I am Beria. <laughs> uh, so, you know, and... Uh, wow. He, you know, apparently, of course, he didn't look anything like Beria, and he didn't even, you know, bother to put on, uh, you know, his uh, his uh, piece, uh, nez eyeglasses, you know, that were... Yeah. Uh, his, his whole trademark, so... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes. Wow. Um, and so, so Stalin, it's safe to say Stalin was uh, convinced by Wolf Yeah, Messing. he was impressed, and, uh, you know, that's part of the whole legend of Messing, and he was a big, uh, you know, figure, like, uh, he was, like, famous. Uh, he was a celebrity. I mean, he was, yeah. like, uh, he was, like, uh, the Soviets' uh, David Copperfield, except not, yeah, like, a weird pedo. To, uh, um, <laughs> well, who was that dude, uh... Uh, the uh, the guy who not David Copperfield but the oh Darren Brown I actually saw like I've oh, seen yeah. Darren Brown on YouTube doing some of these similar tricks of like giving people blank pieces of paper as as money or banknotes yes uh so yeah um I don't know yeah like uh, I feel like Darren Brown maybe uh, could do some of that stuff some of these kind of illusions but uh, yeah yeah um, and I mean he basically became a celebrity and a kind of a stage musician and uh, yeah I mean never was uh, thrown in a gulag or um, seemed to have a pretty pretty charmed life in the Soviet Union until he uh, died I think in 1974. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, or around then. I, I don't know yeah. his exact uh, date of death, but, uh, yeah, so it was 1974. Um, uh, but, yeah, like, uh, it's interesting because, you know, he did kind of, uh, take the line of just, uh, again, they, the authors of the book choose to, like, include this and, and bring this point out about him, but, uh, you know, this, uh, apparently is, is, a accurate or, you know, assuming that the, the authors are doing a good job, you know, this is an accurate, uh, representation of his beliefs. Um, you know, he says, uh, people's thoughts come to me as pictures messing now in his seventies explains, I usually see visual images of a specific action or place. So he died shortly after like this book was being written. Oh yeah. Like, so they got to interview uh, him, but the other guys, yeah. he had died already. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He constantly emphasizes there is nothing supernatural, nothing mysterious about the ability to read thoughts. A uh, quite claim telepathy. He insists is simply a matter of harnessing natural laws. I first put myself into a certain state of relaxation in which I experience a gathering of feeling and strength. Then it's easy to achieve telepathy. I can pick up just about any thought. If I touch the sender, it helps me sort out the thought being sent from the general noise. But contact isn't a necessity for me. Some scientists who saw Messing's showstoppers became convinced he must be getting the message through idiomotor movements. Slight unconscious muscle movements, facial expressions, changes in breathing that can tip off a trained observer. This is like a common thing, I I feel like, in in a psychic uh, phenomena or Mm -hmm. uh, the... uh, like idiomotor impressions I've heard that mentioned around spirit board type stuff. But anyway, Mm. uh, if messing holds the wrist of the sender as he occasionally does unconscious tightening of the musculature could signal which way to walk or when to stop the scientist hypothesized when I'm blindfolded messing counters telepathy is even easier for me. If I don't see the sender, I'm able to concentrate totally on perceiving his thought. According to Messing's autobiography in Science and Religion, the idiomotor theory got associated with him in 1950 when the philosophy department of the Soviet Academy of Sciences was pressed to explain him in terms of the materialistic communist philosophy. Mm. It was uh, the most immobilizing era of the old regime's freeze on thought and life. Okay. okay uh, yeah, okay. quite a, quite a uh, phrase. Literally, uh, they like had to Stalin explain, was his best yes, friend. Um. They had to explain <laughs> him away safely, and so the Academy came up with the idiomotor theory. 
Uh, what a pity that this explanation henceforth was printed on the program accompanying my performances, says Messing. It was due to the cult of personality. Uh, and the authors write in parentheses, i.e. Stalinism. Okay. Oh, so uh, he's a little bit of a Khrushchevite. Um, yeah, so they had to... Um, well, yeah, he did uh, believe in the cult of person, you know, or uphold Which, the idea of the cult of person. You know, I, I actually wonder, just to flip it on its head for a second, I wonder if in the early 70s it was considered taboo or controversial to actually say nice things about Stalin in the Soviet Union. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I think during during the Khrushchev period, I think there was definitely, you know, kind of uh, maybe an informal uh, kind of taboo against that. I, I think maybe in the perception of the Brezhnev era is that it kind of um, it, they. I don't think the Brezhnev era. I, I don't want to show my ass here uh, in like lack of Soviet history. I don't believe that Brezhnev ever like rehabilitated Stalin. Uh, he simply maybe stopped the policy of like attacking him all the time, mm-hmm. but it be I think it became like oh yes, yeah, some very bad things happen. There's a cult of personality, but we don't we don't do that anymore. So you know, et cetera, right, et cetera. Yes. Um, well, yeah, he definitely uh, did mention uh, the cult of personality, um, and uh, yeah, you know, and he was uh, I guess upset that uh, at his performances they had to you know. Pu- print this to make sure people didn't believe in like a, a supernatural uh aspect and uh you know they I guess sure. they're rejecting uh yeah the fact that science and religion publish messing's refutation shows that times have changed you know uh, he refuted the whole idea of the the idiomotor theory um okay. yeah well it's, or, it's interesting know, because it, it just on the his wikipedia article here it quotes an interview with a uh, p oreshkin and messing said uh, about his like telepathy um it's not mind reading it's like the reading of muscles when human thinks hard about something the brain cells transmit impulses to all muscles of the body their movements invisible to the eye i can easily feel often i'm performing mental tasks without direct contact with the inductor the pointer to me here is the breathing frequency of inductor the beating of his heart voice timber his walking nature etc um so i don't know if it I mean, it yeah, sounds well, it almost like he is giving a, a scientific theory of it. Well, he definitely... Well, okay, so no matter what, he always said that he was giving a scientific theory of it. It's possible that in 1961, he had to kind of say something closer to the idiomotor idea, but yeah. then later on, he was trying to get away from that uh, for whatever reason. Sure. Um, but, uh, yeah, because that does kind of seem like the whole uh, idiomotor thing, the reading of muscles, but... Uh, I don't know. Yeah, that's in the Technics of Youth by, you know, uh, so I, I don't know. Yeah, I just see that on the article here. But uh, yeah, but even like, uh, you know, uh, later on, he um, said, you know, my ability to see the future may seem to contradict the materials understanding of the world, but there is not a particle of un- the unknowable or supernatural about precognition, Messing says reassuringly. There is not only the logical scientific way of gaining knowledge, there is also direct knowledge precognition our only indistinct uh or sorry only our indistinct ideas about the meaning of time and its relation to space and the past present and future make it inexplicable at present precognition Mm. which uh many think implies a ready-made destiny has always been a horror to communist ideologists who struggle hard to bring the russian peasantry out of a swamp of superstition and fatalistic defeatism (laughs) uh of course there's free will messing continues but there are patterns the future is shaped from the past and the present there are regular patterns of connection between them. 
the mechanism of these connections is far from being known by most people, but I clearly know myself that it exists. Um, wow. So. So he's, I yes. don't know, it sounds almost like he's talking about some kind of like 4D uh, dialectical conception of history. Yes. And apparently the censors, according to them, the censors did withdraw his full autobiography. Um like, uh, you know, when it was meant to be printed. I'm sure that it was probably printed eventually in, in some form, but... Um, yeah, what, you know, uh, that w- was that around the time he died? Um, in uh, So what they write is, after the appearance of an announcement that Messing's full autobiography would be printed by Sovietskaya Russia in 1967, the book was suddenly withdrawn, although it may be circulating in manuscript form. Maybe prophecy and the revelation of too many, quote, wonders bothered some well-placed people. Maybe Messing mm. told too many stories involving upper echelons of the party. One wonders if Stalin ever put Messing to more practical political use. Ooh. Maybe the cancellation was just another beat in the endless Soviet two-step, thaw and freeze. What we do know of Messing's account of himself indicates that the rest of it could be anything but dull. Wow. Yeah. So I think that, yeah, you definitely could, you could see that maybe, because that, that also, that would have been around, yeah, 67, 68, um, that coincides with a kind of simultaneous, like, explosion in Soviet culture, um, which we also kind of talked about in our previous episode about uh, the uh, Seven Steps Towards the Horizon documentary, which yeah, came yeah, out yeah. around that time, and I think even... Um, featured some of the individuals. Um, definitely yeah, like Rykov. Uh, he was Rykov, a yeah. celebrity. Yeah, yeah Vladimir Rykov. Yeah, who mm-hmm. was yeah, heavily featured in a documentary. Yeah. yeah, so there was like an explosion of kind of official recognition of a lot of parapsychological phenomena and um, like an increased public interest and increased government interest. But I think also simultaneously there, there had to have been an increased interest in the potential defense or military applications of this technology. So maybe some of the things Messing talked about uh, were things that maybe they didn't want broadcast too widely at that time, or they had, I think, as opposed to, um, because it would seem to cut against the grain of kind of, oh, this is like, uh, you know, they're doing the old Soviet two-step, and this is a freeze because they want to, uh, you know, just bury this parasite. In a lot of other ways at that exact time, they were... Uh, making it, they were publicizing parapsychological stuff in all these different places. And the Soviet Academy of Sciences was <clears throat> getting more into it. So I, I think maybe mm, that might lend credence to the idea that maybe there is some uh, highly valuable content uh, discussed in that. I'm sure we could find it. I mean, I think it was eventually released, right? Mm-hmm. But maybe there was a little bit of a nervousness about it. Yeah, maybe, and some of it was maybe cut. You don't know, because, uh, yeah, who knows when it came out. Um, Since orders, yeah. yeah. Some version of it does exist, yeah.
<laughs> do we want to move on um, to uh, Kirlian photography um, and uh, Semyon Kirlian? Yeah, that sounds good. He gets discussed. Now, I think you might actually know, I think you've read a little bit about Kirlian photography, like, outside of, like, these books. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, that's, like, one of those, like, famous, like, paranormal subjects, you know? Uh, it's, like, something that has definitely gone beyond the world of, I feel like maybe, you know, it's definitely a Soviet innovation, but that had a lot of play outside of the Soviet Union, and, like, it got yeah. a lot of uh, attention. Um yeah. And, uh, yeah. yeah. Like, so, uh, I mean, what, what's your, what's your kind of, uh, take on Kirlian photography? Cause it seems when you look it up, it's, it, it's very weird. It's kind of like, okay, yes, this is real, but also, um, there's like, you know, there's a lot of debunking kind of floating around it of like, well, it's not really like, there's no paranormal kind of application to the, that's all fake, but but it seems like this is an intriguing invention. The thing about like the, I mean, like this is kind of running up against the same thing that we've seen, like in, uh, this, uh, this, this book and some of those other discourse around this, uh, with the whole idea of like the supernatural or the paranormal, like really, I guess you could call maybe things like paranormal, but like the whole category of the supernatural is very slippery. It doesn't really hold up like fully, you know, like if Kirlian photography were real, it wouldn't be supernatural. It would be like a natural phenomenon. It'd be so, like ra- radiology like, or um, exactly, and cat the same thing with or like, something like that. Telepathy. What well, would be something that's like supernatural? Maybe would be, for instance, you could talk about like a miracle, something supernatural. But like really, the like the religious theory of miracle is that like God has certain habits, and then like he makes an exception to those habits. And of course, like you know, that's not against the nature of anything you know that's not outside nature that's just like a different uh you know it's just like a change in in habit you know it's a it's like a extra habitual or something you know Mm -hmm. uh but uh or a deviation from from habit uh but uh yeah so the whole idea of like the super like most of the things that we talk about as being supernatural phenomena like you know if they were you know confirmed to exist or uh, they would be natural phenomena like if ghosts were real yes. they wouldn't be supernatural they would be part of the natural world all right so, there, so there, there's a value like, judgment inherent in that category when you yes. call something paranormal or supernatural that you're basically saying it's like not scientifically verifi- verifiable and like probably not real yes and it kind of it's interesting because it comes up against like you know things like being able to read thoughts those are seen as being like a bequest in like again it comes against the whole like traditional like versus like modern paradigm like in broad strokes you know like uh, as we kind of talked about before like in an older paradigm like those are seen as being like a divine bequest in some way and like that is something that is special by virtue of the relationship between an individual and god but if not like then those would be you know not miraculous but like natural phenomena and something mm-hmm. that like anybody could harness so that's like a part of this whole thing like feeding in uh to this idea Kirlian photography would fit definitely in like it's just basically the idea that humans have some kind of energy field that yeah. can be photographed like you know for instance if you like cut a leaf in half or whatever or uh yeah you know then you photograph uh one half of the leaf you can still see like the you know missing section of the of the leaf like faintly if you use a special photographic yeah same thing with someone who has an amputated arm you can see the aura 
of their arm. You know, we talked very yeah. early on in our Aquino episode, you know, he uh, referenced this and, and believed in it, uh, you know, so. Uh, yeah. And I, it mentioned it in his mind, wore white paper. Totally. Um, yeah. I, I'd so. like to read just a very simple kind of overview of curling photography um, right, yeah. from Wikipedia here. It's a, a pretty brief, but uh, basically the history of like what was called kind of electro electrography. Uh, electrography oh that's a tough mm-hmm. word um but basically yeah. in 1889 um I, I guess we really see here that like the the slavic mind is really uh on the ball with this invention but uh in 1889 czech b navrato coined the word electrography seven years later in 1896 a french experimenter h baraduk created electrographs of hands and leaves in 1898 polish belarusian engineer jakob jadko narkevich demonstrated electrography at the fifth exhibition of the Russian Technical Society in 1939. Two Czechs, S. Pratt and J. Schlemmer, published photographs showing a glow around leaves. The same year, Russian electrical engineer Semyon uh, Davidovich Kirlian and his wife Valentina developed Kirlian photography after observing a patient in Krasnodar Hospital who is receiving medical treatment from a high-frequency electrical generator. They had noticed that when the electrodes were brought near the patient's skin, there was a glow similar to that of a neon discharge tube. The Kirlians conducted experiments in which photographic film was placed on top of a conducting plate, and another conductor was attached to a hand, a leaf, or other plant material. The conductors were energized by a high-frequency, high-voltage power source, producing photographic images typically showing a silhouette of the object surrounded by an aura of light. In 1958, the Kirlians reported the results of their experiments for the first time. Their work was virtually unknown until 1970 when two Americans, Lynn Schroeder and Sheila Ostrander, published a book, Psychic Discoveries Behind the Iron Curtain, High Voltage Electro... Yes, one of the two, the earlier one. High Voltage Electrophotography soon became known to the general public as Kirlian photography. Although little interest was generated among Western scientists, Russians held a conference on the subject in 1972 at Kazakh State University. Oh, I thought Borat, uh, nobody yeah, in Kazakhstan well, go to college. Uh, of, yeah, well, they were doing uh, <laughs> uh, all sorts of different presentations at that conference on anti-Semitism, Holocaust denial, you know, it was mostly throwing Jews an anti-Semitism down wells, um, festival. Yeah, yeah uh, exactly. It was all about how evil uh you know muslims don't want jews to have the self-determination yeah uh, and they and they also, also talked about Kirlian photography yeah they talked about and, how jews don't have auras uh, um, yeah and reaffirmed yeah. their their critical role in running the death camps during the holocaust um yes yeah, um, yeah absolutely and, uh, uh, yeah, so and what else? Yeah, um exactly. actually almaty that'll come up later in in um almata uh in kazakhstan uh was actually like the biggest hub of scientific parapsychology research and some of the brightest minds in the entire soviet union were there so um score another point against sasha baron cohen yeah um Mm-hmm. But anyways, yeah, generated into, uh, you know, what it is today where they just constantly throw the Jew down the well, et cetera. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. We hate to see it. Um, yeah. But anyways, uh, Kirlian <laughs> photography was used in the former Eastern Bloc in the 1970s. The Corona discharge glow at the surface of an object subjected to a high voltage electrical field was referred to as a Kirlian aura in Russia and Eastern Europe. In 1975, Belarusian scientist Viktor Adamenko wrote a dissertation titled Research of the Structure of High Frequency Electric Discharge, Kirlian Effect Images. Scientific study of what the researchers called the Kirlian 
Australian effect was conducted by Victor Inushin at Kazakh State University. And early in the 70s, uh, Thelma Moss and Kendall Johnson at the Center for Health Sciences at the UCLA conducted extensive research into Kirlian photography. Moss led an independent and unsupported parapsychology laboratory that was shut down by the university in 1979. So uh, Thelma Moss gets mentioned in uh, the this first book uh, multiple times and maybe somebody will circle back to later because we know Louis Jolly and West and a lot of other suspicious uh, scientists were doing kind of uh, cutting edge parapsychology, MK Ultra kind of research at UCLA in the 70s. But I think Thelma Moss was one of the uh, university scientists that was uh, paying close attention to what was going on in the Soviet Union. But, uh, mm-hmm. but anyways, um, that's pretty much the the up and the long and short of Kirlian photography and um I mean the effects are pretty cool um especially when you do it with color film it's a it it looks very I'm just looking at a picture of a fingertip right now and it does look quite you know cosmic uh (laughs) yeah like Um, yeah like very new agey almost um yes I mean well it's also like there this is like a super big aesthetic influence as well like uh i'm trying to think you know like you've probably seen like kirlian photographs before used for like aesthetic purposes uh in fact Mm -hmm. like george harrison uh in his uh, album living in the material world you know he used a kirlian photograph for the cover of his hand holding a hindu medallion uh yes um upon release rolling stone described it as a pop classical work that stands alone as an article of faith miraculous in its radiance uh uh, i just looked that up on wikipedia uh, myself but um anyway yeah so uh you can see like the sort of new agey associations of kirlian photography but really like i don't even know like uh i mean i've heard about this like i don't really know too much about like how the leaf thing was like debunked or whatever but it does seem that the conclusion according to the wikipedia article of carolina photography is that like you know the whole thing with the torn leaf uh doesn't actually suggest uh anything like you know really that remarkable that is mostly just like you know like a, a corona effect produced by um the electrodes this is what wikipedia has to say about the torn mm-hmm. leaf uh a typical demonstration uses evidence for the existence of these energy fields involved taking Kirlian photographs of the picked leaf at set intervals. The gradual withering of the leaf was thought to correspond with the decline in the strength of the aura. In some experiments, if a section of a leaf was torn away after the first photograph, a faint image of the missing section sometimes remains when a second photograph was taken. However, if the imaging surface is cleaned of contaminants and residual moisture before the second image is taken, then no image of the missing section will appear. Uh, so... Yeah, that's, uh, they write, the living aura theory is at least partially reputed by demonstrating that leaf moisture content has a pronounced effect on the electrical discharge coronas. More moisture creates larger corona discharges. As the leaf dehydrates, the coronas will naturally decrease in variability and intensity. As a result, the changing water content of the leaf uh, can affect the so-called Kirlian aura. Um, The coronal discharges identified as Kirlian auras are the result of stochastic electric ionization processes and are greatly affected by many factors, including the voltage and frequency of the stimulus, the pressure, the pressure with which a person or object touches the imaging surface, the local humidity around the object being imaged, how well grounded the person or object is, and other local factors affecting the conductivity of the person or object being imaged. 
Oil, sweat, bacteria, and other ionizing contaminants found in living tissues can also affect the resulting images. So, yeah, you know, there's, like, a lot of factors that go into the image. Like, does this, like, depict, like, the aura in the sort of sense of, like, a psychic field? Again, like, these terms kind of, uh, you know, you can almost see the point of uh, the uh, Columbia biologist dude, uh, Yvonne, whatever his name was, uh, who, you know, talking about, like, the... Um, slipperiness of the word psychic you know um Mm -hmm. because like uh it doesn't really like uh tell you that much like what does it mean for i guess it has something to do with the mind or whatever your emotions like your aura will change color based on what your thoughts are i mean human beings do have uh i think we've mentioned this before like i'm sure we have like uh you know we do have like of course like an energy field as all living things do sure like uh you know uh is it possible to like see an aura in a different i don't know if uh Kaleen well i will say that my that aura or anything I, you know i don't know i yeah i don't know if those auras are necessarily kind of related um though i do remember my slightly uh, kind of out there uh AP psychology professor uh, did teach us about auras one day mm-hmm. <laughs> during his parapsychology module um, at and the end of the year. Kirlian photographs to demonstrate. I, I, I can't remember, honestly, if he brought up Kirlian photography, but he did bring up kind of the more new agey idea that some people are capable of seeing the auras around other people. And that, yes. you know, uh, I perhaps... remember listening to like a, uh, you know, our, um, you know, our spiritual lodestar on, uh, this podcast, uh, coast to coast. Actually, it wasn't coast to coast. It was, uh, beyond strange and mysterious. Okay. Uh, which I think was a coast to coast, like a knockoff, um, at one point, uh, maybe, uh, I mean, it was either a knock. I'm not sure if the people were involved, but it was very much the same sort of thing. It was a New York, uh, uh, radio show. Um, and, uh, this, uh, you know, the dude hosting it was very much like an Art Bell type, and he is talking about this story, which I guess he had written a book about, uh, uh, called uh, So Now You Know, and it was about, <laughs> like, some woman who was, like, sitting in a, you know, she could see auras, uh, and she was, like, sitting at a bar or whatever, and she was looking around and, like, looking at everybody's aura, and someone was like, what, you know, uh, and, uh, she, like, looked over at one guy, and, uh, you know, she suddenly was like, <gasps> you know, and whoever was with her was like, you know, what's what's wrong? And she's like, that man, like, he has no aura. And he came uh. up to her and was like, so now you know. And like, <laughs> <just went> up- <laughs> no. Oh, my God. What does that mean? He's a reptile. Uh, you have to read the book. So now, you know, uh, to find out. I'm sure you wow. can still get it out there Maybe somewhere. We'll, um, we'll, we'll put that on the reading list one day. Um, um, yeah, I'm coming up with uh, if I search. So now, you know, on, on Amazon, I'm coming up with a. Uh, so now you know a memoir of gro- uh, growing up gay in Indiana. I feel like I need to search. Uh, so now, you know, aura. <laughs> yeah yeah actually find it uh well it's out there somewhere anyway yeah yeah i i would like to read uh just one more thing about kirlian photography that kind of gets to this i just found a kind of interesting um a declassified cia document on cia.gov um that i think was from 1973 that is all about kirlian photography and the work of dr victor inyushin 
um, who I believe is, uh, he's definitely discussed in this uh, Soviet parapsychology book, but um, I just want to read this little passage of like, what did the CIA think about this stuff in the early 70s when they started hearing about it? Like, what was their estimation? So this, uh, this subsection is called The Revived Leaf. <clears throat> and it says, a, a plant leaf that had just been torn off was placed in the discharge device. The current was switched on, and a bluish luminescence appeared on the surface of the leaf. Then several needle pricks were inflicted on the leaf, and it responded instantaneously to the mechanical action. A reddish luminescence appeared at the spots of the wound. After a certain time, the leaf began to wilt, and its luminescence gradually attenuated. But when a person walked up and extended his hands a distance of 15 to 20 centimeters from the leaf, the, quote, healer literally poured fresh forces into the dying cells. After several minutes, the luminescence of the leaf became renewed. This is how a leaf responded to bioenergetic action. This experiment was performed in 1972 by Professor Thelma Moss at California University who we just mentioned, having taken up the study of the Kirlian effect, she decided, first of all, to use it to investigate remote interaction between living systems. Specifically, she was very interested in the experience gathered during the work of the Tbilisi healer Alexei Krivortov, um, who actually I think is uh, was profiled in the parapsychology book. Uh, Moss was able to find people who confirmed, like Kriv- Krivortov, the fact that they could more or less heal by the, quote, laying on of hands, How can one check such bold announcements? Let us assume the patient says that he feels better, but after all, better or worse are purely subjective estimates. As far as traditional clinical methods of research are concerned, they are in all their objectivity fairly complex and prolonged. Here is where the, quote, high oxygen frequency photograph came to the rescue. It turned out that during a a seance of bioenergetic action, a clearly defined in-change of in color and intensity of skin luminescence, sorry, a lot of typos in this for some reason, skin luminescence was observed in both the healer and the patient. These results were obtained in the laboratory of Newark Engineering College by Dr. D. Dean. However, one confusion remains. After all, the patient knows that one is trying to help him in some way. It may be the, quote, high often frequency photograph simply reflect a change in the state of the person as a result of suggestion and self-suggestion. It is then that an experiment was thought up on the effect of a person on a wilted plant leaf. In the, uh, in the opinion of Moss, the experiment confirmed the fact that the healer radiates a certain energy which acts on living objects. Quote, Kirlian photography may be an indicator of the interaction of people in a wordless, invisible, and probably electrical way, wrote Moss in her paper published in the collection Galaxies of Life. This collection was published in the USA last year and was edited by the well-known psychologist Stanley Krippner. The material of the first conference in the West on the Kirlian effect were published in the collection. Thus, here is a reliably established fact for which there is yet no explanation. What is this, quote, some energy, and does it really have a beneficial effect? And um, I guess uh, it says, uh, there's, okay, there's one more paragraph here called the riddle of mummy, M-U-M-I-E, parentheses, mm-hmm. mummifying substance. Okay. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, oh, we're getting yeah, the mummies sure. now. Uh, as has repeatedly been noted in the literature, Kirlian method is an irreplaceable indicator of psychophysiological processes that go on in the human organism. This method may be used to register the slightest fluctuation in the state or even the mood of an individual. For example, a person merely needs to become a little excited or frightened, and the luminescence of his skin instantaneously changes its color and intensity. The shape and structure of the corona become quite different. 
see the paper by v- Victor Adamenko titled Rays of Life uh, in 1973. A group of students at the Moscow Engineering Physics Institute likewise recently confirmed that during emotional excitement of a person, a shift in the spectral characteristics of the luminescence is observed. Incident- incidentally, research in this field promised great unpleasantness to people addicted to all kinds of intoxicating substances. Thus, this journal has already told of the fact that with the aid of the Kirlian effect, one can accurately determine whether or not a driver has been drinking or not. The aureole of a finger changes radically immediately after taking even one glass of beer. And at the International Conference of Problems of uh, Psychoanalysis, uh, Professor Moss told of an experiment uh, that is no less curious. Sorry, it's cut off. 65 volunteer subjects were divided into two groups. The members of any group took a small dose of marijuana, while the other group took a dose of an indifferent substance. Then, Kirlian photographs of the luminescence of the skin on the tips of the fingers were made for all the subjects. And what happened? From the pictures, it turned out that no one could determine without error who among the tested subjects was under the influence of the narcotic. Note that neither the experimentalist who evaluated the photograph nor the tested subjects knew which group they were in. This could be clarified only according to the papers stored secretly before uh, the completion of the experiments. Okay, I'm sorry. I have to read one more because I saw the word (laughs) giants. The word giants pops up. Uh, So... Senior scientific associate Victor Adamenko performed a similar experiment. The mysterious substance mumi, a mummifying substance, was used as the investigative doping substance. In figure two at the left, you can see the luminescence of a finger of the person in the normal state, while at the right, you can see the finger of a person after mumi has been taken. The difference is obvious. Is it not possible that the Kirlian method will help to uncover the secret of the effect of the most ancient medicine? Scientists have already been struggling with this problem for more years than one. See the paper by A. Grichikian titled The Tears of Stone Giants Mumi, Legend and Reality uh, in 1971 and maybe the key will be found to solving the riddle of the effect of other folk medicines alone. also as a result of high oxygen frequency photography which of their components act on the human organism to change the luminescence what specifically do the variations in color shape and structure of the corona characterize these questions remain unanswered for the time being so uh so okay. mummy is like mu- like you know quote unquote mummy powder mm. right or, or mumia i guess it's spelled m-u-m-i-e uh i'm not familiar um, with it but i e uh yeah i guess that's like mumia uh yeah which is like a uh you know yeah it's a, it's a folk medicine mm. um yeah that's uh yeah. yeah it is an old folk medicine i don't know if it's the most ancient form of medicine but it definitely is uh yeah yeah Uh, so i mean it sounds it sounds from there that the the cia was pretty intrigued by the applications of this you know kirlian photography but perhaps uh didn't quite know what to make of it yet or how it could be instrumentalized um for medical or other kinds of purposes Mm-hmm. I mean, I love that they're already thinking about, like, how to catch people with DUIs, like, with it. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's kind of a bummer. Um, uh, but it makes you, what, you know, why why not? I guess it, maybe it just doesn't work that way. Or, you know, why not, instead of a breathalyzer, do, do we have an aura reader? <laughs> but, I mean, is it really, like, the aura that is being seen? I feel like because it, like, involves an electric charge... I feel like this is something to do with electricity uh, that, yes. you know, 
I just feel like the whole idea of being able to photograph the aura is also like I don't know. Like I I'm not like convinced of I mean there is like a concept of like a nur in like uh, Islam, you know, like the light, but usually you can kind of see it or like feel it or sense it, you know, like uh I just feel like being able to photograph the aura like kind of is against like the point of the aura. There might be some way to do it, I guess, if there were an aura, but I feel like it wouldn't be quite so simple. I don't know. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I mean, there I, is a chapter on this in the, uh, in, in the, in the Schroeder and, and Ostrander book, but yeah, it's, it's generally like positive and, you know, about the idea of, uh, you know, maybe being able to see the aura through this, but I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, it's still, um, and, and the book doesn't, even though there are chapters later on, um, I think they do go and meet. Victor Inyoshin, and he is using uh, Kirlian photography to almost the way like a radiologist would use like uh, a, you know, um, what's it called? Like a CT scan um, or something like that or an MRI to like diagnose precancer and things like that. And uh, also it, it ties into some of the even... Um, it, it sort of connects to a lot of other kind of far out interesting ideas about energetics and like the energetic connections. Um, maybe we'll get to that uh, closer to the end. It's in one of the last chapters, but even uh, they even one scientist contemplates like the existence of ghosts uh, as being kind of connected to this phenomenon. Um, well, right. Yeah. Like the energy, <laughs> energetic impressions on like the ectoplasmic yes. continuum of the world, you know, will create ghosts like, uh, yeah, I remember hearing one ghost story about like, you know, a ghost that was seen like, you know, just from like the waist up into the ground because like the, you know, the ground had uh, gotten higher since the person died. So like, you mm -hmm. know, he was still walking on the, uh, you know, on the old earth. Uh, uh, but yeah, like, yeah, I mean, yeah. They just, definitely uh, believe in yeah. the haunt, like in places being haunted by the electrical imprints of people that have like lived yeah. there or interacted with this material. Like we leave a residue, we leave this kind of energetic residue everywhere. And they even postulate the existence of a soul operating kind of uh, existing within this kind of paradigm um that was a uh, yeah. dr sergey gennady uh Sergeyev, who i think yeah uh, not to uh rain too much in the carolian parade but yeah in the uh in the shorter ostrander you, they really uh you know instrumentalize this whole story uh they say uh, in the early 1960s soviet journalists published a number of hard-hitting exposés on the plight of the carolian invention this situation is as bad as before the revolution, one of them said, when the evil hand of czarist bureaucrats determined there was too much uncertainty and novelty. The outrage writer continued, All the scientists who have seen the Kirlian work agree research is urgent and that the Kirlian discovery can bring great benefits to man. Twenty-five years have passed since the Kirlians made this discovery, yet the ministries in charge still haven't released any funds either to the Kirlians or any scientific research institute to carry out this work. You know, uh, mm. and at last in the 1960s, it did happen and they got, you know, uh, funding um, and uh, yeah. Mm. Uh, and so, there was, but, I, mean, I mean, yeah, Victor Inushin was in Almata and he was doing all kinds of kind of high level. So they they did get support. And yeah, it kind of opens the question of like, where where did this research lead and why aren't we all studying yeah. each other's auras today? 
Right, yeah. You when know. Did it, you know, I guess, the, I mean, there definitely was research in the United States, I think, at uh, UCLA. Yeah, Thelma Moss some, was right? at UCLA yeah. and did these right, things right, that, right. Uh, very interestingly, I mean, the CIA was very up on what Thelma Moss was doing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I wonder if they even kicked her some funding to explore some of this stuff. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that, like, you know, uh, I mean, like, you know, that's not to say that, like, the people who believe in the possibilities of this were, like, dumb, but... Uh, or, like, missing something, it makes sense to, like, be interested in exploring it, like, there, you know, it's, it's interesting to see, and maybe, like, there is some utility to it, uh, but, uh, yeah, I don't know yeah. necessarily yeah. it would be. Was there a lot of UFO stuff in the first book? Yeah, there's there's some good stuff. Actually, like, um, they, uh, we talked a little bit in our recent uh, episode on, like, the To the Stars Academy and UFO stuff about uh, J. Allen Hynek, uh, who was actually mentioned in the book. Um, the guy who I think, uh, I'm not sure if it's the same person, it's a different Ziegel. Uh, or it might be a different Ziegel, but um, I don't know if the... Felix uh, Ziegel? Uh, yeah, it is Felix Ziegel mm-hmm. of the Moscow Institute of Aviation, who, yeah, they, they talked to him as well um, as the authors of the other book. Um, and, uh, yeah, he has a whole, uh, you know, uh, part here. He said, um, we have well-documented sightings from every corner of the USSR, uh, you know, sort of going against the idea that there weren't any uh, UFOs in Russia. It's hard to believe all our optical illusions. Illusions don't register clearly on photographic plates and radar. He mentioned a double tracking that involved Air Force Major Baidukov flying at night over Odessa in April 1966. Uh, you know, he went to this UFO sighting. I don't think it becomes a real scientist to approach problems with the man of the, gir- uh, of the giraffe there ain't no such animals, Eagle said. Without rejecting the visitors from space hypothesis or any other theory, we must begin a systematic study of the UFO enigma. We must use our astronomical, meteorological, and geophysical observ- observatories, our space rocket and satellite tracking units, our airport and hydrometeorological radar. Uh, and this is where Hynek comes in. Ziegel's first public airing of UFOs in the USSR stirred up Dr. J. Allen Hynek, chairman of the astronomy department at Northwestern University and America's leading scientific expert on UFOs. Writing in Playboy, Dr. Hynek confessed his greatest fear. One morning, he would unfold his paper to read Russian Solve UFO Mystery. Oh, Hynek yeah, daydreamed yeah. the Soviets <laughs> would come up with some mundane, previously unconsidered explanation of UFOs. 
or much more traumatic, the Soviets would report the first contact with members of an extraterrestrial civilization uh, reconnoitering no. us. No. Uh, either yeah, story would think... shake America so hard that the launching of Sputnik in 1957 would appear in retrospect as important as a Russian announcement of a particularly large wheat crop. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think I read, didn't I read from that article uh, that I found on CAA.gov that was by Jay Allen Hynek that was, uh, yeah, fretting over the possibility that right. the Soviets could make some kind of uh, contact. Um, no. Yeah, um, and um, yeah, Felix Siegel was a big, I guess he very famously, he went on Soviet television on November 10th, 1967, and uh, made an extensive report on UFO sightings uh, all around uh, the USSR, and he called on all citizens as their patriotic duty to report any sightings um, or close encounters that they <laughs> might have. And th- this, the um, breakthroughs in... Uh, Soviet parapsychology uh, or the Soviet psychic discoveries book uh, lists like, I mean, Felix Siegel gave um, these uh, journalists like an, an almost mind numbing array of things, which sound very similar to the stuff that's like in the disclosure documentary, basically that yes, there was like weird UFO encounters that started happening. Um, though they also explore the idea that there are, you know, um, even before like the 1940s, um, and, uh, things like the, even things like the, uh, Tunguska incident, which we'll discuss in a second, um, perhaps some kind of UFO connection. And, you know, he, um, he had a lot of, um, very high level scientists kind of working with him. Um, I see, uh, two of the other people that the National Enquirer guys interviewed were, uh, Vesevolod Troitsky and Nikolai Kodashev, who worked, um, in, I think I misspoke last episode when I said they worked in, um, Tbilisi. They actually were in Yerevan, Armenia, and <clears throat> they interviewed them about kind of the, more about the possibility of extraterrestrial life and whether or not... It's visiting um, us, uh, and um, Siegel actually said in an article that he uh, he published in Smyrna magazine uh, around the time he went on TV, uh, he said, these UFOs have been seen all over the USSR, the craft of very possible shape, small, large, flat, and spherical. They are able to remain stationary in the atmosphere, shoot along at 100,000 kilometers per hour, they move without producing the slightest sound by creating around themselves a pneumatic vacuum that protects them from bumping up in our stratosphere. Their craft have the mysterious capacity to vanish and reappear at will. Besides, they are able to affect our power resources, putting a halt uh, to our electricity-generating plants, our radio stations, and our engines without, however, leaving any permanent damage. So refined a technology can only be the fruit of an intelligence that is indeed far superior to ours." So, I mean, he kind of, like, came out and was, like, kind of endorsed, like, the E.T. theory of this and was even doing it uh, publicly. And um, and he would stress it at various times uh, that, you know, he, he was sanctioned by the KGB to publish both, like, in academic journals and in, you know, big magazines and also as Samizdat. Um, he published mm-hmm. some Samizat stuff that was, you know, he stressed, like, actually sanctioned um, by the KGB. Um, and uh, uh, Wait, isn't the, isn't that, like, by its very nature, like, uh, 
banned by the state, but it was licensed, or it was disguised as being banned and, and not? Well, I see here that this is actually interesting. This gets a little thorny because it says in July 1976, one of Zegel's parentheses KGB sanctioned, as he made a point to stress later, lectures uh, made in the secret Moscow Kulon factory was published by the Samistat. Amateurishly shorthanded and full of mistakes, it contained some personal data, including the author's telephone numbers. What followed then, or what Ziegel later referred to as his, quote, days of nightmare. On November 28, 1976, sci-fi writer Yurami Parnov published in uh, Komsomolskaya Pravda an article entitled The Technology of Mythmongering, calling for, quote, this whole UFO business to be sorted out and labeling ufology, quote, pseudoscience. Ziegel responded um, by the technology to the um, he responded with the quote technology of lies article, uh, none of which the central press wanted to publish and made an unsuccessful attempt to sue Parnoff for libel and Ziegel's UFO study group was disbanded. And what he saw as the quote libelous campaign aimed at the UFO studies as a whole commenced. Um, OK, so I think I should probably uh, correct that and say that. I think um, the lecture that he gave was KGB sanctioned, and then it was written down and published mm-hmm. by the by the illegal press, which caused this like public backlash against him. But it, right. it does say here it was amateurishly shorthanded and full of mistakes, including like writing down his phone number. So mm-hmm. mm, maybe a capitalist provocateur is uh, trying to undermine legitimate UFO research. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't or know. someone like took notes on it and published it. You know. Uh, yeah, 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 maybe um, some some nefarious force that wanted to, uh, tr- yeah, um, anyways, but uh, to get to kind of, like, what's in the book and some interesting stuff that they bring up, like, they go and have, like, a picnic interview, the National Enquirer guys, uh, at the, um, the National, um, astronomical uh whatever the observatory is outside of yerevan um and they're hanging out with kardashev and with uh shklovsky it says here chewing on a blade of grass kardashev was just as happy a boyish looking 40 year old with ruffled black hair and a carefree smile his white shirt open at the neck he looked like a typical image of a russian poet rather than a famous scientist an international authority on radio astronomy engaged in the study of space sciences Shklovsky, whose credentials included membership in the Soviet Academy of Sciences, the American Astronomical Society, and the, and the Royal Astronomical Society of Great Britain, wasted no time in getting to the heart of the matter. Quote, Despite a probably very low frequency of life in the universe, I agree with my colleagues that we are not the only intelligent beings in existence. Other civilizations exist for at least two reasons. First, there is such a vast number of star systems in space. Second, we know that chemical building blocks of life exist just out there just as they do here. I would place them at the distance of several hundred light years from Earth, even though I would not rule out the possibility the nearest one may be a hundred light years away. To an advanced technology, the exact distance doesn't matter that much. What matters is that they are most probably out there and that the level of technology on some of these planets is close to ours. The living beings and their span of life need not necessarily be similar to us. Those ahead of us in development could convey to us an enormous wealth of knowledge. I too have studied the subject very closely, Kardashev joined in. 
While I don't rule out the possibility that such planets exist, I believe that where our own galaxy is concerned, there are few such civilizations left. The bulk of them have already joined the super civilization that I would definitely place within the very nucleus of our galaxy, 40,000 light years away. This super civilization is millions and possibly billions years older than we are. He stopped for emphasis, then went on. These are circumstances obviously far beyond our comprehension. We would have to take leave of what we would call normal reasoning to assume such things as a progression from natural life to life with artificial bodies and from there to fully artificial life controlled by artificial brains and an eventual parting from mass. However fantastic this may sound, modern science is quite willing to apply this progression to humanity and to expect Earth to be eventually inhabited by automatic computer-like machines. It would take between 450 and 1,000 years for man to go through this evolution and presumably reach immortality. The ultimate machines would be what immortal. What the fuck? Why is everyone obsessed with this? I don't like, know. Chill. Like, why, <laughs> why does everyone want, like, an AI singularity slash, like, domination of Earth? Like, it's... Uh, like, I don't know. I don't know. But it's he's, sus. It's he's, incredibly he, sus. Okay. Everything okay. 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 Right. Let's hear the Soviet astronomer out. Um, the right. ultimate machines would be immortal, but programmed to have emotions and thus would function like human beings. These machines could eventually leave our solar space to join the super civilization and the nucleus of our galaxy. The area in the nucleus of what you also know as the Milky Way is the most promising location for such a a civilization made up of migrations at different times from dying planets. It's an ideal spot. From the center of the galaxy... That's where Salvington is. Um, Yeah, exactly. Uh, (laughs) From the center of the galaxy, a civilization could easily be in touch with many other galaxies. We also find a tremendous amount of energy radiation in this area that such a civilization could profitably put to use. The two men exchanged knowing glances. <laughs> then, using the stem of grass as a pointer to emphasize his remarks, Kardashev went on to discuss the black holes that astronomers have discovered in space but have not yet fully explained. I believe these black holes can be widely used by a super civilization nearby to give its, uh, to give its uh, beings an opportunity of traveling through time. Theoretically, if the fundamental laws of modern physics hold up, a man in a spaceship who flies into a black hole is bypassing time. He cannot go back in time, but he can advance into the future. We believe that these black holes offer an exit to the next space. The theory is that the universe consists of many separate spaces and that the black holes are linking passageways. He furrowed his forehead. Then, pensively, he said, The beings of this super-civilization, who are on a so much higher level of intelligence than we, are most probably machines, immortal, possessing artificial intelligences. It is impossible to guess their physical shape if mass still applies, which I doubt. Shklovsky, who had been nodding encouragement while Kardashev expounded his extraordinary theory. So they're energy beings or something. In a way, or uh, gods, perhaps. Uh, But anyway, Shklovsky... Nanite clouds, or right. something like, like yeah, like clouds, like so. uh, exactly, um, like quasar or I don't know, um, nebulas. Anyways, but um, Shklovsky says uh, I fully subscribe to the hypothesis of machines ultimately inhabiting our planet. The machine beings of the super civilization Professor Kardashev describes may be small, may be large, may not, may have no physical shape whatsoever, and have turned gaseous into the shape of a cloud. Such a super-civilization does not inhabit a planet. A planet would be too small. Possibly, instead, it's a system of machines. 
Obviously, it is beyond our comprehension to communicate with this type of ultimate civilization. To them, we would have the minds of insects or less. They could not be interested in us. I do not believe that it would want to communicate with civilizations like ours. There is no level on which we could meet. But on the other hand, I can see how thousands of years from now, by which time we will run out of energy and space, we would want to join the super-civilization Professor Kardashev is talking about. By then, obviously, we'll be super-beings ourselves. Ours should be a planned, conscious migration to the one ideal spot in our galaxy where we may continue to exist, in whatever shape we may have by then. This won't be, though, until well after our civilization leaves the plateau our astrophysicists expect us to reach in 100 years. I am confident that the fantastic developments of our technology, now racing ahead, will slow to a crawl before the end of the 21st century. Whatever man will be by then, his interest for more technology will have died down. It won't resume for several thousand years. It was Kardashev who brought us back to the reality of the present. Soviet scientists are manning posts all over the country in a very determined and scientifically programmed effort to probe the universe for signals from space, he stressed. These signals are expected to be short impulses sent out far apart at exact intervals, maybe once a month, even once a year. They will be short because of the vast amount of energy needed to have them picked up at distances of many light years away. Their precision and regularity would prove them to be artificial, the products of intelligent life in space. Whew, so, uh, so yeah, pretty, um, pretty, uh, I don't know. I mean, yeah, okay, what do so we think about that? Reach, we're going to become satisfied with like our level of technology around the end of the 21st century. Will we have become like machines by then, but then we'll suddenly get a new interest in technology? Like, at what point are we going to become, like, AI beings? Uh, that does, that does seem to, that does seem to contradict a little bit. The idea uh, that we're going to yeah, reach a point of exhaustion with our uh, technological progress, and then it will kind of pick up 800 years later. I don't know exact. I mean, I, I guess there is probably a pattern throughout history where technological development kind of happens and like fits and starts. There have been long periods of sort of plateaus. I guess, um, kind of. I mean, the, the, if you think about the technology that was developed between, say, like, you know, the year 100 uh, AD and like 1000 AD, it didn't quite change, not much really changed, right? I mean, different I mean, forms of government of. and religion kind of uh, evolved, but... Yeah, I mean, there probably were some, like, uh, innovations that, like, developed uh, during that time, I would imagine. Uh, like, not really thinking of anything, but, like, certainly scientific studies, like, maybe in optics, in the field of optics. I mean, from, like, AD 100 to, like, AD 1000, like, that's... I guess you're you know, right. Like, I, I think, like, uh, out, like, I mean, maybe I'm... But I mean, like, of being course, a little there's, bit like, of a huge escalation of, like, since, like, the Industrial Revolution, where, yes. like, the transformation of life is, like, very dramatic, um, and there is kind of the idea that, you know, people in, like, the, you know, like, 15th century or whatever are more like people in the first century than, like, we are like them, even though they're much closer to us in time. People say mm -hmm. that. I don't know if I would necessarily consider that uh, you know, if I would necessarily, uh, consider that true, but, you know, uh, there's something to it. Um, so I get, like, the idea, but I don't know if there are, like, plateaus or that man's desire for new tech, but I, I just, like, yeah, I don't really know, and when they say whatever man will have become then, yeah. but it seems like his journey won't be completed, I mean, it's kind of, like, besides the ultimate point, I guess, which is that, like, you know, why is it 
why does everyone want to become an AI god? It's incredibly sus. Like, I don't <laughs> think it's good. Um, it definitely like, is one of the more ominous, like, pronouncements. Uh, and, like, everyone it, seems to be obsessed with it. Uh, it's extremely bizarre. Um, yeah. It's, like, it, stop. And, uh, yeah, I know, I know. And it, it seems to be a, yeah, almost like a transcultural uh, phenomenon among, like, astronomers and scientists and people like that in the, in these uh, centers yes. of, like, the, the very, uh, the kind of the real, you know, tip of the spear in terms of, like, scientific technological development. Um, but I, I think also, hmm, I don't know, it's, like, it's eerily prophetic um in that i don't know maybe these people well i think john c Lilly, in a way was like getting at the kind of same areas of you know we're just a sloppy disc um and yeah. that, you know i i am sure that the the sort of singularity idea was floating around before like ray kurzweil started really popularizing it maybe in the yeah. 90s um mm-hmm. but but to see it kind of um be casually sort of discussed by these like very high level astronomers and stuff. Um, and it, yeah, in a weird like, way, I mean, desirously by all these people from like, you know, uh, yeah, be including, uh, these Soviet scientists. Like, I just don't understand like why the notion of a technological singularity or like turning into an AI is appealing to anybody. It doesn't um, sound but, appealing, and they don't seem to be kind of bothered or enamored with it kind of either way. It's just kind of like, it is what it is. Like, that's what we're going to do. And to the extent that humanity is only able to survive in that form, I guess it could be viewed as, like, a positive, but um, it, they, they, they sound kind of more... Um, maybe more deterministic about it um, than somebody like Ray Kurzweil, but also, like, not as uh, utopian or, like, they're not yearning after this as kind of, like, their version of salvation, I guess. Um, hmm. Well, it does seem like it's positively valenced to join the super-civilization. They are saying that, like, you know, in in thousands of years, like, it will make sense to us to join the super-civilization, but right now it's completely incomprehensible. I guess they do kind of throw in that little caveat that, you know, these are concepts that... It does seem like it it does come off as a bit positively valenced uh, in, in what they're saying, I think. Um, I guess at the end of the day, at the end of the day, in terms of a trajectory yeah, of history, that this, yeah. which like, isn't, eh. you know, it's a... Whereas, like, I feel like general, like, the feeling about it should be like, no, like, let's not become, like, a bunch of, like, nanite clouds, uh, <laughs> like, yeah, nanite clouds, like... Well, the uh, other... I mean, like, you know... The, the like, other thing but, is yeah. that it, it gets to the dynamic that, like I mentioned, we would we would see popping up earlier and a lot of these different things which is that it kind of um it, it, you almost could see this as being like oh so this is how um this is an explanation for how gods come into being is like they're actually yeah. like literally like they've just evolved over like a million years to the point where they have they've they've mastered like interdimensional travel through black holes and they like maybe they assume kind of the position of what we would call gods because like There's what else are they going to do at yeah. that point there's a great passage about this in the uh, other uh, book uh, by uh, Ostrander and Schroeder um, about uh, Vyacheslav Zaitsev. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, yeah, um, he believes and has spent years documenting his theories, they write, 
uh, that spacemen landed on Earth, bringing with them the dawn of human civilization. So he's like kind of a forebear, it seems, of the uh, uh, ancient astronaut stuff. Yes. Gods from the sky, he calls them. Uh, Zaitsev, a philologist at the Belarusian Academy of Sciences, scoured old documents, particularly sacred run- ones, to arrive at his ideas. The biblical account of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah resembles a nuclear explosion, Zaitsev points out, not unreasonably, as it would be described by an uneducated witness. You know, if you've mm-hmm. ever seen Ancient Aliens, you recognize this kind of thing. According yeah. to Zaitsev, the Holy Indian Sages, the Ramayana for one, uh, sorry, sagas, uh, the Ramayana for one, tell of two-storied celestial chariots with many windows. They roar like lions, blaze with red flames, and race off to the sky until they appear like comets. You know, this is all, like, stock ancient alien stuff at this point. Um, Some uh, Soviet archaeologists think the chariots may have left records behind. Recently, archaeologists found 716 stone disks in caves in Bayankara Ulala Mountain, edging China and Tibet. These records... I feel like there's even been an episode of Ancient Aliens about this. Probably, Um, yeah. Like, uh, yeah, but anyway... um, that they're big so. these guys are big on the ancient aliens hypothesis and they they yeah. come at it from a few different angles including i think the most interesting one that was written about uh in in this book was uh, the theory about the planet phaeton uh yes yeah and um i can read a little from when they interview professor Ziegel and um they they want to know basically about this theory that I think Zaitsev, Ziegel, and others had kind of bandied about that basically there was a planet uh, where the asteroid belt is today was once a planet that they've called Phaeton uh, that mysteriously exploded <laughs> at some point. Um, but uh, but it goes deeper than that. So. Um, so let's see. Yeah, the following afternoon, too excited to stop for a meal, we met the balding, sad-eyed Professor Felix Ziegel in uh, author Alexander Kazantev's apartment. Um, <clears throat> and let's see. Uh, as far as mm, the reason for our meeting in Kazantev's p- place was simple. The two men were not only very close friends involved in complementary research, but they agreed with each other's theories. If the alien Krenov was still in doubt, Professor Ziegel and Kazantsev were not. As far as they were concerned, Phaeton did exist, did suddenly hmm. disintegrate, and what happened to Phaeton should be a poignant and awesome warning to all of us on Earth. Quote, The life and death of Phaeton explains a lot of what is contained in these books, Kazantsev said on that first day we got together. He had surrounded himself with a large number of volumes, mostly in Russian, and almost all were scholarly translations of ancient literature, preserved legends, mythology, paleontology, and the like. But we won't waste our time on that. He dismissed them pleasantly. Writers like Eric von Daniken have already dwelt on visitors from outer space and on what apparently they left behind for future generations of Earthlings to ponder over. What these writers fail to consider is that some of these space visitors came from Phaeton. I am certain of this. They did not come of their own free will. They had not come to our Earth to colonize a planet which, they knew from earlier explorations, was a primitive and forbidding place still in an early stage of development. They came because they had nowhere to go. Ziegel didn't want us to use a tape recorder, nor did he like the idea of our taking notes. The ascetic face of a true scientist registered wonderment. Can't you memorize? He asked almost reproachfully. We can, we reassured him. This, then, is what he said, reproduced to the best of two reporters' abilities. Fate, quote, Phaeton disintegrated as a, as a result of a chain of explosions originating on its surface. Had this destruction been a volcanic origin, the planet breaking up from within, the debris would have been hurled in all directions, eventually settling down into an elliptic orbit around the sun. 
another possibility, collision in space. Collisions that can cause destruction of a planet the size of Earth are most improbable, yet they must not be ruled out. What matters, though, is that a collision, head-on or even at an angle, would have thrust the debris into yet another oblong orbit, one even longer than the one caused by a volcanic explosion from within. On the other hand, the planet breaking up from without, through its crust, would have caused the resulting debris to remain on a near circular path. Any astronomer will tell you that the asteroid belt has an orbit that is nearly circular, that in this respect it is remarkably similar to that of our Earth, or, for that matter, of those of the other planets in our solar system. In other words, it is the orbit of the missing planet. It had to be a surface force, applied laterally, that caused the destruction of Phaeton. The tectikes found in the Karakum Desert, Siegel explained, have provided a precious clue by reminding us of the glass-like slag found at the source of our own nuclear explosions conducted on the ground. Tektites have been created in laboratory tests. More recently, tektites were found after firings of the Soviet Tokomak-10, a thermonuclear furnace which, while still experimental, is the largest in the world. The temperatures under which these Earth-originated tektites were produced were well above 100 million degrees. The comparison with tektites of space origin left no doubt whatsoever as to their thermonuclear origin. Quote, is it, it was important for us to prove this, since our opponents have theorized that tektites are a bribe product of meteorites slicing their way through the atmosphere and coming down to Earth with such velocity as to generate such temperatures on impact. We now know that at no time has the temperature at impact of a meteorite exceeded 200,000 degrees centigrade. He paused for emphasis. We have tried to create tektites artificially using that temperature. The resulting tektites are completely different from those occurring naturally. What appears probable, then, is that it was a thermonuclear explosion, because nothing short of that would have produced so disastrous an effect, and if we accept this as what actually happened, we can also logically assume the entire course of events. First, the original thermonuclear explosion. Second, a thermonuclear chain reaction involving other sources of thermonuclear power. Third, the oceans exploding, and with that, the crust of the planet cracks wide open. The possibility that oceans may explode has long ceased to be a fantasy of science fiction writers. Atomic scientists have readily admitted that at a temperature of hundreds of millions of degrees, water turns into thermonuclear fuel such as powers a hydrogen bomb. Ziegel continued, We can assume, therefore, that with its shell destroyed, the planet went on dis disintegrating until nothing but rubble remained. Conclusions the chain reaction on Phaeton was triggered. Having been triggered, it could not be stopped from spreading. The triggering force was man-humanoid. There is no other explanation. Man of the species inhabiting Phaeton and belonging to an advanced civilization had thus caused his own destruction, probably in the course of a thermonuclear war. Even though mishaps must not be totally ruled out, I do not believe that it was a technological accident. Um, so, you know, I mean... Yeah, he says that uh, someday when our cosmonauts reach out into space, traveling to Mars and beyond, they will be able to investigate the asteroid belt at close quarters for traces of intelligent life on Phaeton. The larger asteroids such as Ceres, Pallas, and Vesta, whose diameters range from 380 kilometers to 700 kilometers, could become perfect jumping off places for advanced investigations. It is quite possible that in space archaeological terms, the smaller asteroids, representing bits and pieces on the surface of Phaeton, will prove more important. At any rate, our cosmonauts, and your astronauts, will know what to look for. One day they'll come back with the first archaeological finds that will tell us about a missing civilization. After that, our study of Phaeton will start in earnest. Um, so Interesting. It, it's, in, it's almost like, it's, it's actually sounds very similar to like the theory of Atlantis. Uh, yeah, or uh, Krypton. 
it sounds a lot like oh yeah (laughs) Uh, but uh yes interesting Um, yeah but i guess you know atlantis is also like a uh prefiguration of that i mean i guess early astronomers uh i'm trying to think was it kepler or was it copernicus it was uh copernicus uh, discovered heliocentrism yeah, Kepler had said uh, that there was too large of a gap between uh, Jupiter and Mars, and that there yeah. must be a planet there. Yeah, that's actually. Uh, but I, guess uh, or what he I meant think was it, it was it was actually quoted in the book. It's called the the Tidius Bode Law or Bode's Law is basically mm-hmm. about the spacing the, yeah, of planets. Rahe, and there, there's and according to the formula, which um, the formula ends up basically counting like zero three six and then from six the number doubles every time and so mm. basically i think the number 24 so they he they came up with this formula and then throughout the 20th century i think he he was like 17 uh it was in the 1700s when um the 1770s, I believe, when he kind of came up with this but then in the 20th century they were able to verify it it was like pretty accurate i mean not perfectly but like so you know if zero is the sun actually i think zero is uh is mercury three is venus six is earth 12 is mars and then 24 is missing and jupiter is about 48 in this formula and there's just no 24 so that that was a um it's something that's brought up in the book as a very intriguing clue as to like well yeah like was there a planet there and uh yeah i mean i think that even like you know the conventional theory like the conventional theory of the asteroid belt like today is that like the planet creating process at least began and then it didn't like quite come together because of like the you know the gravity situation with jupiter or something yes that's a yeah yeah um I guess, like, uh, yeah, I mean, could, I mean, are there enough, like, asteroids? I mean, I guess, like, some of it would just become, like, maybe space dust, like, so there'd just be, like, a bunch of dust out there, so, like, what, the asteroids still floating around wouldn't be, like, you know, you wouldn't be able to just piece them back together, because I'm wondering, like, is there enough, like, you know, mass there for, like, you know, a a sizable planet? Um, For it to have been just a planet? kind of i mean for just to be the debris of a planet could it populate well, that amount of asteroids be, well there aren't that many asteroids in the asteroid belt like you know uh my thing is like are there enough asteroids like even to come together um you know to to like you know in, in the asteroid belt um i, I yeah, bet like if you that, added up all of them because some of them are like belt. almost you know 700 kilometers wide and there's definitely some kind of big chunks and and of course a bunch of it could have like flown off into space if there was some yeah, kind of explosion I guess that would or have something to be what it was because like the total mass of the asteroid belt is like just three percent of the mass of the moon so that's like not enough oh wow like, i know, see so yeah it must have been ejected from orbit for the most part except for yeah, or it must chunks. have like vaporized or something, and be, uh, or what if uh you know if there was a phaeton, um that uh that kind of blew up. But uh yeah, in terms of like the um like the idea of these sort of alien gods like coming down uh from phaeton, there is a uh 
a good quote in, in the Ostrander uh, book about uh, from uh, Zeitstep about this. So yeah, he talked about all that uh, ancient alien stuff, and then he says um, uh, some other interesting things uh, about... Uh, it says, Zaitsev bolsters his gods from the sky thesis with a wide knowledge of architectural history. Early peoples, he thinks, model their sacred buildings after the machines of the space visitors, thereby immortalizing them. He has books full of examples. The shape of the American Gemini space capsule can be found in ancient structures. Notably, it appears in a textbook example of Judaic architecture, the tomb in the Valley of Cedron. Correspondingly, the silhouette of a classical example of... A uh, Phoenician sacred building, the tomb of Amrites, resembles the Soviet Vostok. Halfway around the world, the Vostok shape also appears in the very early stupas carved in the Indian cave temples. Uh, Chinese pagodas, uh, like the famous Iron Pagoda near Kaifeng, uh, mm-hmm. churches, Muslim minarets, all have a skyward urge, according to Dr. Zaitsev. He points to the minarets surrounding uh, St. Sophia in Istanbul. Mm-hmm. They look like rockets ready to launch. Yep. Preserved by the messianic ecstasies of religion, these cosmic symbols inspired by our early visitors and benefactors came through into Christianity, into Russia. Look at the spires of the churches. Compare the onion-shaped cupola of the Ivan the Great bell tower in the Kremlin to the bell-shaped prow of the Vostok spaceship. Uh, Dr. Zaitsev took, uh, told the parapsychologist that a further research proved these theories man would have to change his ideas about the origins of civilization and religions uh, and our ideas of messianic beliefs. If we really were visited centuries ago, we may be on the threshold of a, quote, second coming of intelligent beings from outer space. This is blue-beamy. I'm sorry. Anyway, his <laughs> eyes have, uh, second coming isn't just a theological illusion. He thinks Jesus came from outer space. Here we go. Again, some uh, blue-beam stuff. That he was a representative of a higher civilization. This supposedly explains, in part, his supernatural powers, his tremendous abilities. In other words, the descent of God to Earth is really a cosmic occurrence, Zaitsev says. He thinks the Soviets should, in this sense, consider the coming of God a real historic event. Only Zaitsev suggests the term God might be changed to cosmonaut jesus christ (laughs) (laughs) that's amazing Uh, that's amazing yes that kind of sums it up in a nutshell cosmonaut jesus christ yes cosmonaut jesus christ um yeah so you definitely can see like kind of the grappling with like religious concepts um yeah you know and like trying to accommodate these to um you know a uh different framework 100%. Um, I I, want to read just a little more of Ziegel kind of like making a similar argument. Maybe we can, you know, compare the two to see if they were doing coordinated disinformatia. But um, he says about Phaeton, since we are dealing with a civilization well into the thermonuclear stage, which we ourselves may not reach for another 50 years, we must assume that their exploration of space was at a more advanced stage than ours is today. Their spaceships could roam our solar system, presumably concentrating their investigation on our system's life belt or temperate zone, including Venus, Earth, and Mars. They would have had no knowledge that uh, they would have had the knowledge these three inner planets were best suitable for life as known on uh, on Phaeton. I am sure they actually saw their own planet disintegrate before their very eyes, a ball in space that suddenly crumbled into thousands of pieces, its molten interiors pouring out, turning into solidified chunks that broke up again in an endless chain reaction. One thing was certain, they had no home to return to. Denied a return home, some of them at least landed on Earth while the rest perished. This explains the origin of ancient legends about gods arriving on Earth aboard fiery chariots, legends preserved and passed on by historians of antiquity, including Plutarch. 
Eric von Daniken, who visited me before writing his famous book, Chariots of the Gods, claims to have discovered traces of extraterrestrial visitors in many places on Earth, from the Andes to Easter Island to China. Kazantsev feels that the remarkable repository of 716 inscribed stone plates discovered by the Chinese on the Sino-Tibetan border was left behind by a tribe whose forefathers had come from outer space. According to a Chinese archaeologist who claims to have deciphered part of the message on the stone and plates, the tribe died out. They were humanoids but failed in their attempts to assimilate. However fantastic this claim sounds, let us not shrug it off, Kazantsev said solemnly. I believe that it would have been quite possible for Phaeton spaceships to land in that area. Their spaceships carried tools and weapons, and we can assume that a number of the ships managed to converge on a certain area of our primitive Earth for a concerted landing. Once they had landed, this is it, of course, the survivors of these ships could have established a colony of cave dwellers in the knowledge that this was the only way. The main question is, how well equipped were they to settle on Earth that was still inhabited by the big-bodied monsters of the pre-Homo sapiens period? How could they survive? If Zavaritsky was right, Phaeton had surface conditions very much like those of Earth today. Its air, water, its gravity were very much like ours. Thus, presumably, breeding a Homo sapiens, uh, again, very much like ourselves. They were not little three-eyed green men, nor were they giants. Aww. Aww. They could have been They could have been no taller than twice our size. Okay, so maybe giants. All right, so they were giants. Uh, maybe yeah. giants. After That's all. That's a generous, uh, yeah. Yeah, or like a conservative idea of what giants are. Well, this, this is uh, interesting. twice our yeah. size, you know. This, this is an interesting uh, uh, theory for giants, actually, that um, they could have been no taller than twice their size. After all, we ourselves are growing taller and are at least one third taller than man was 2000 years ago. Could they fend for themselves? We can only guess that they managed somehow, but also that in the end, generations later, they perished. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think if they were like 12 foot tall uh, Phaetonians uh, who came here <laughs> on spaceships yeah. and then dwelled in caves, uh, you know, if the shoe fits, if it, if it yeah. walks like a giant and it talks like a giant and, you know, lives in the mountainous regions of, uh, uh, yeah, they um, they don't know what the exact time of Phaeton's destruction was, but uh they quote tend to believe that it was closer to 500,000 years ago rather than a million. This period coincided with the dawn of the Neanderthal man, not all that many years prior to the appearance of the creative Cro-Magnon man. Assuming that people from Phaeton lived a minimum of 500 to 1,000 years, as will we thousands of years from today, they bridged the gap from primitive to thinking man to perhaps help him, educate him, and leave him with the legends of gods coming down from the skies aboard fiery chariots, and the legends of atomic wars fought, however, not on Earth, but on Phaeton. Then, even as the last of the descendants of the men from outer space died, these legends lived on. If this was so, and I believe that it was, then the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle fall into place. Finds such as the primitive rock paintings near Fergana in Soviet Uzbekistan, depicting a figure wearing typical spaceship gear, suddenly make a lot of sense. So do the clay figures of the cosmonaut gods of Honshu. The Honshu figurines date back to the period when Japan was inhabited by the Ains, a Stone Age people. Found in local graves, they feature a being very human in shape, but wearing unmistakable cosmonaut garb, helmet, spacesuit, space footwear. At second glance, you discover that the slit-goggled helmet appears to be fastened to the spacesuit in very much the way that we attach it today. There are female plugs on the sleeves below the shoulders and the back of the helmet, and a gadget box featuring more outlets, presumably for life and communication lines, and the overlong sleeves end in stubs that look like our mechanical manipulators, operated from within the sleeve, rather than gloves. 
there is no other explanation. The creatures had to be <laughs> cosmonauts. But it is also evident that spacesuits like these could hardly sustain a trip of many light years from a planet of a different solar system. This is the gear we would use when flying to explore Mars. Hence, they had to have come from Phaeton. So, uh, I don't know. Is it kind of putting they forth some... I mean, they, they really do deserve credit for like being on this ancient aliens tip. They definitely were. Like, all this stuff, like... It seems like they like nothing has changed. Like there haven't been any new ancient aliens breakthroughs. Like they're touching on everything. Like I remember seeing that like little spaceman figurine. Like you know, it's all yeah. And it seems like they even talked to Eric von Daniken. So yeah, uh-huh. uh, I would say definitely they deserve the credit for uh, the you know ancient alien stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I just wanted uh, to point out as a little fun side note, I didn't get to look up because I wasn't aware of this, but um, there was a um, animated short film called Phaeton, the Son of Sun, that was mm. created by Soyuz Multifilm, which uh, created the delightful, iconic um, child, the children's cartoon character, Chiburashka. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in 1972, they made this movie uh, in which the asteroid belt is portrayed as the remains of a planet. Um, and there are numerous references in it to ancient astronauts. So, wow, even in, like, children's stuff, they were really all about the Phaeton theory. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Um, that's quite a... Yeah, that's very strange. I feel like it's a bit, like, sacrilegious, like, inherently. I mean, I am (laughs) kind of reminded of... Uh, I mean, maybe that's a plus, like, the idea. I mean, maybe this idea from, like, you know, an official like atheistic perspective is preferable to like religious mythologies to kind of, uh, you know, cast them as like, you know, something that at least is, you know, uh, can be, yeah, like a, you know, made it to a historical event rather than like something that's just made up, uh, Mm -hmm. I guess like, uh, yeah, the reason like, you know, Jesus did all these miracles because he was an alien or whatever, you know, um, well, it, yeah, it you know. really, it, it definitely, it, it puts an interesting twist on the stance of atheism, going from, like, you're religious, God isn't real, this is ridiculous, these are, uh, you know, uh, uneducated people with superstitions who can't explain natural phenomena, so they make up these wacky stories, and they're sky daddies, and all this other stuff, and I think as we've discovered, like, in, um, a lot of different topics like throughout this podcast is that there is a kind of um like I'm not so sure I want to just like snicker at um like rural people doing like folk practices because they do seem to have efficacy mm. in in a way like once you scientifically kind of investigate them in the sense in, in maybe a kind of broader like um sense instead of just trying to prove the phenom the scientific phenomenon itself is like quote real or not but like the effect that it has like how magic mm-hmm. like in a way doesn't need to be like what you would consider quote unquote real in order to be like effective and then that does kind of make you question then well is it real if like is it not real if it has an effect um and you tumble down the whole you know what is real and all that stuff but um, well, but it is yeah, interesting I mean, how they're they're trying to like almost find a way. They are trying to find this way to like reconcile a kind of spiritual, religious, or quote paranormal beliefs with like materialist science. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a transformation in the way that, like, space is understood. It's a transformation in the way that, like, the cosmos is understood. Like, uh, you know, like, it's a transformation from, like, the heavens to, like, the idea of, like, outer space. You know, it's a, a different notion. And, yeah, like, uh, it's maybe a way to make uh, some of these, uh, like, extremely influential uh historical events uh mm-hmm. you know like our uh, historical personages or like uh, influential phenomena in uh, human culture like christianity uh you know assimilable to uh the you know something that denies uh the conventional narrative of these things yeah. um you know uh i you know uh i don't necessarily find uh the idea of like going through because i feel like that Again, like my instinct in terms of the UFO stuff, as we said in the recent UFO episode, um, my instinct is kind of the reverse. Like I am inclined to see like the UFO phenomena through the lens of, uh, you know, uh, spirituality, for lack of a better word. Mm, Yeah. Uh, You know, um, well, I I will say that that a lot of the I forget which um, of these UFO scientists elsewhere in the book, I don't know the quote handy, but they a lot of them were very interested in the sort of interdimensional ET hypothesis, Uh, Mm -hmm. much like Jacques Vallée, you know, how he went from thinking these are like aliens from outer space to thinking that these are kind of like spiritual entities almost like they're like jinn flying in from another dimension and a lot of these uh soviet astronomers and ufologists kind of uh were a lot of them kind of fell into the same camp where they believed that um the problem of distance was kind of leading them to entertain that theory because they really felt like like i said in the quote or like I read in the quote earlier that, you know, traveling from like a hundred light years away feels so impractical and kind of ridiculous. So it's like, it's actually more likely that perhaps they're either using some kind of like black hole sort of, you know, wormhole kind of thing, or, uh, maybe, uh, they're, some kind of spe- energetic. I mean, it, if it's funny how like depending on how you kind of like arrange these sort of different hypotheses that these guys that like there's an AI super civilization that travels through black holes at the center of the Milky Way galaxy, and then there's a uh, there are UFOs, and then there's other dimensions that like you can access, and also that you know we were taught, um, you know, ancient astronauts came and like taught us like enlightenment and and things like that. Um, depending on how you kind of arrange that jigsaw puzzle together, you could kind of still come up with like a re- sort of religiously compatible sort of uh, well, I feel scientific like, explanation for. Well, um, I feel like the idea, like, you know, it shows how like political some of this stuff is. And it's actually an interesting, like, you know, uh, uh, sort of historical feature of the development of the ancient alien stuff, because there's like a political impetus and like a cultural or socio-political uh, and socio-cultural impetus to like reject. Not that like the I the like traditional narratives about Jesus and his identity, whether like you know you think of him as being God or uh, like you know uh, another like sort of spiritually excellent being. Mm-hmm. Um, you know it. Uh, like, you know, for instance, like a prophet, like, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, in Islam, like uh, a perfectly acceptable explanation. Um, you know, there's nothing like inherently like more 
ridiculous or less like scientific about that really it shows like the political like uh you know the way that uh the conclusions of science like a lot of the time are determined by like uh other like uh socio-environmental factors because uh you know like there's nothing really that makes the idea of an ai super civilization or phaeton like more like you know visitors from phaeton with special powers like you know, sure. more tenable than, you know, the idea of God per se. Um, but, yeah, I, I you know, think that's a good like a point. That's a good point to me. Yeah. The, and now we have the legacy of this ancient alien stuff. And I think that probably was a big factor in sort of shaping it. Um, is that well, what, what do you make? Impulse? So, okay. So we see, uh, as with a number of things that were like weirdly much like, you know, uh, like the, I think OGAS, like the proto-internet that the Soviets sort of conceptualized first, but then eventually got beat out. Like, what do you, what do you sort of make of um, the popularity of ancient aliens in our culture and, or, you know, kind of the engineered like primacy of that idea via things like the History Channel and um, circa, starting about maybe like 10 to 12 okay, I, years like, ago? I think this like doing this podcast is like slowly like you know driving me a little bit like nuts uh, in a way that I wasn't necessarily prepared for. Like I consider myself pretty desensitized to this stuff, but I'm starting to like believe in Project Bluebeam, um, and <laughs> like like not like you know necessarily uh, you know in a in a doctrinaire way like that. I believe that the actual like you know in the actual specifics of Bluebeam as like uh, described by uh, Sergey Monast, but it does seem curious to me. That, you know, I mean, of course, like these, uh, like the, the people who we talked about uh, promoting this idea today aren't like, uh, you know, uh, super influential in its current primacy in our culture. Um, but like, you know, the, the combination between like the uh, prevalence of the idea of like, you know, becoming AI gods or yeah. like uh, sentient nanite clouds in a singularity or something combined with like the ancient alien stuff. Um, you know, makes me almost think, uh, you know, like, are, like, is there going to be some kind of like, you know, engineered second coming <laughs> where like, you know, no, uh, for sure. it's well, like, you know, would, I mean, if that doesn't literally happen, like the, like step one of Bluebeam, which probably was like, just based on observation of this stuff, like the sort of undermining of, uh, you know, uh, traditional sort of narratives of uh the world like uh you know traditional yeah. cosmologies and they're sort of like a and the sort of alien idea as a tool of that one thing that i think the whole blue beam thing does is make the connection between the sort of ancient alien beliefs and like uh the sort of uh atheistic like notion where like this new false messiah that's going to be beamed to everybody to like try to sigh off the world into believing that Jesus has come back. That's going to be accompanied by like UFOs and like alien type stuff. So I think it, it, it is in a weird way. It's, it's much more likely to be cosmonaut Jesus Christ than just regular Jesus Christ or Isa I feel like people, or whoever it's going to yeah, be today, because I think it, it, it wouldn't be viable if they just spitballing here. Hypothetically, I don't think it would be viable to just have like, it's it me, Jesus. And you know what I mean? Because then all the people that have kind of fallen away from religion and even people that are religious that have kind of absorbed a more secular, like scientific worldview, 
might not like work on them but if you see this idea of like ancient astronauts and aliens and ufos in the culture for like 30 40 years and it, and kind of even use it to like undermine like traditional re- religiosity and then you bring like an alien and then if everyone in the media is you know accepts it as real like wow finally like alien visitor is here you know, in a kind of like new agey sense to like help upstep our civilization and like solve yeah. our problems. I mean, we have to stuff. do, we have to do like a proper blue beam episode, but yeah. I mean, I definitely think that like the idea of cosmonaut Jesus Christ is more appealing to like, you know, certain, I mean, uh, like leaving aside the good number of Americans who are still like devout, like Christians of whatever persuasion, um, you know, I think that probably the idea of cosmonaut Jesus Christ is certainly more in, like in line with sort of the new age, like sort of formulations that uh, are, you know, also proliferating. It's a more like like, you know, people are down with Jesus like a teacher, you know, or uh, an ascended wise, master. Know, like, yeah, an ascended yeah. master. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, the, the th- here's the thing that jumps out at me, like the kind of adoption of this uh, in like the U.S. and in the West is that like when when you see these like Soviet scientists coming up with theories about like cosmonaut Jesus Christ and like the Phaetonians bringing us like advanced civilization, all these things, it's, it's kind of very transparent kind of what they're grasping towards, which is like, like we said earlier, like a way to like it makes sense why the Soviet Union would promote those types of ideas or be kind of cool or even encourage the dissemination of those ideas because it's trying to like find this synthesis, uh, very dialectical, you know, like try to find this synthesis between religious belief, which many people in like Soviet countries still, you know, subscribe to, uh, to varying degrees. Um, and then like the scientific, like sort of secular state and, you know, um, Marxist Leninist ideology and so you could see kind of like the game they're getting at of like they would just like to kind of merge these two things together and find like you know resolve the con- the contradictions and the tensions mm-hmm. between them instead of just like you know contrary to propaganda just like crushing everybody who like has a cross or you know yeah. says a prayer or, like, even has if a Bible there was like certain attempts de- at that or like you yes. know it's not viable it's the same thing where, it wasn't like, viable you know, Stalin the rehabilitated the, like, the orthodox church today, who are like you know like religion is the most toxic thing in the world like you know like all right okay well what are you gonna do about it because you can't get rid of religion so like everything that you're saying you know or yeah. although like even like uh, some of your uh, marxist leninist comrades on twitter who will just be like uh y'all need to like pay more attention to what marx said about religion because like he is not like you know the left needs to re-embrace atheism like well okay that's fine like as your opinion but you're not getting rid that's, of religion uh well that's like, funny because I, that's funny because I've, like, I've seen like the opposite thing being said on twitter recently no i have by i have as well I yeah feel like, of yeah, marxist feel saying like, like that's actually not like the open of the masses quote is like not well what the he, reason he didn't mean it the way the atheists interpret it basically the reason why there's backlash is because like i think that there is like sort of a softening of that stance towards religion on the left which i think is like necessary and yeah. not only insightful but necessary because like as i think the soviet union learned yeah. uh like you're not gonna be able to like you know just like reason or like force people out of religion at all uh, China will learn yes. the same. 
Uh, well, China, I, absolutely, particularly because they had a more uh, a heavier lift in regards to like convincing the peasantry to get on their side. And, you know, I mean, the Soviets also had that that idea. I mean, it's like when Marx is thinking in terms of like solely kind of like using like the proletariat as your you know class vehicle to gaining power. Um, I think maybe, you know, because he because he wasn't, you know, he didn't necessarily formulate this idea of like, you know, form an alliance of like workers and peasants. When you start to try to get the peasants on your side who had very deeply held uh, religious beliefs, um, you know, all of a sudden the sort of edgy um, atheism, that, that big city atheism doesn't play so well. And, um, you know, in, in some ways they had to, yeah, they had to find ways to sort of make peace with that. So, but, but I guess like the, the thing I'm thinking is, okay, like you could, you could see kind of what they were going for by promoting this kind of like ancient astronaut thing, but like what is being got at in the U S by promoting that, you know what I mean? Because we are not ostensibly an atheistic Marxist Leninist society, we are not mm-hmm. an officially atheistic society. We, we, in fact, you know, it's in God we trust and everything. So, and of course, you know, we have freedom of religion and people are free to, you know, call other people religious and all that stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But it does seem that there is like this big cultural, um, and I don't know, maybe in this capitalist society, um, very media saturated society with all kinds of different sub sub beliefs and sub ideologies and fringy things that you can subscribe to or kind of just even collect a grab bag of like new age stuff astrology maybe a little christianity a little buddhism some yoga just throw it all in in a big bag together so like what is ideologically productive about pushing the ancient aliens Um, hypothesis in the united states today I mean, I think that there's multiple factors to it. On one, like, people have a fascination with the subject, and in a way, the UFO... Like, again, it is, like, there's a continuum between this phenomenon and, like, older phenomenons of, like, uh, phenomena of religious experience, you know, like, uh, and uh, of experience of the numinous or something like that, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, So, in a way, like, this is, like, a different expression of uh, something that has, you know been a feature of humans civilizations and societies for like a long time like uh and the fascination with ancient aliens is kind of like you know a uh a contemporary adaptation of that old like uh fascination so i think on one level like it is an idea that holds some appeal to people to the extent that it's being like promoted uh well i mean yeah like a that is, like, what's sus. I mean, if you go, like, again, you could go down the blue beam, like, route and say, like, you know, that something could be done <laughs> to, like, uh, you know, control the, you know, to simulate the aliens or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so that would be, like, you know, one uh, sort of, di- like, uh, direction. But I do also think that, like, uh, you know, since the big UFO boom, uh this has been like, you know, uh, I mean, we can even see like in Russia to an extent, uh, as well as like in the United States, you know, the, like these sort of, uh, saucer, uh, stuff has been incorporated into, uh, like, you know, religious expression, uh, of different kinds. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, like it's, it's really like a deep subject and like, you know, uh, 
I imagine this won't be our last discussion of UFOs. You could go into it uh, quite endlessly. But yeah, it's hard to draw the line between, you know, this is kind of coming back to like the Mirage Men type of issue because like to what extent has the idea of flying, flying saucers, the ET hypothesis, ancient aliens, like how much of that is promoted and encouraged how much of that is you know a sort of more organic like grassroots cultural phenomenon like Mm -hmm. uh because i do think that like uh you know even lights in the sky all the aspects of the ufo stuff has been with us for a long time so there was you know it might just be a function of cultural changes interpreting phenomena in different ways sure. but i don't know and i think like when you see like things like uh you know to the stars academy or whatever like you see sort of attempts to uh control or, or understand this um you know yeah so yeah i mean i and well they certainly i i, I forget uh, to what extent they don't really get into stuff about like ancient astronauts or do I'm sure Tom, they don't, they don't do ancient astronaut stuff, but they certainly like have an investment in the narrative, like around UFOs and like this sort of, it's not ancient aliens. The ancient alien stuff to me is fundamentally about taking religious stories and interpreting them to be about aliens where I see the crossover between that and disclosure is that disclosure is still messianic. Because, uh, you know, you might like Tom DeLonge, you it's know, literally uh, like re- a revelation. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like there's going to be this big moment where it all comes out similar to uh, Q or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, oh, by the Q. way, R.I.P. Yeah. R.I.P. QAnon. Yeah, um, I guess you've been assassinated. Uh, he's bar- by the he's been buried state. in. Well, he's yeah, he's uh, been buried in state. You know, people will go to uh, pay respects to his body one of the few uh yeah that video of trump visiting him at arlington was really moving yeah Um, it was really moving Uh, yeah yeah Um, yeah exactly you could really see (laughs) but uh but no yeah these these uh you know i think i will have put in the last episode um the amazing uh don henley song from his 2000 album inside job very prophetic, very subliminal jihad kind of album, but the song They're Not Here, They're Not Coming, where he mm-hmm. makes fun of the UFO community for, and also seems to like maybe, into, like he's getting out in front of a Project Bluebeam to like mm-hmm. tell you the truth uh, in a way that Don, only Don Henley can, but you know. Uh, you know, they're not here, they're not coming, not in a million years, yeah. till we, you know, till we put away our troubles and like conquer our fears, um, you know, the pervasiveness the of the expectation but. of the AI gods or like becoming the AI gods. So, yeah, like I see like, you know, for instance, like uh, Lily saying like, you know, there's the solid state intelligence going to come and put us all on a farm. You know, the whole Rocco's Basilisk, like, mm-hmm. you know, the machines taking over. Chicken Plus, factory. like, you know, the idea of like, oh, maybe we'll get to become the robot gods. There's like the weird like hope for that, which is like, you know, an easy thing to manipulate. Plus, like, the whole, like, you know, like, cosmonaut Jesus Christ, like, stuff, you know, like. Uh, it, it's interesting how that syncs up that, with like, the new agey stuff that Jesus was into Built into, I mean, not to, you know, like, uh, like, uh, be too, like, uh, you know, heavy handed in uh, my uh, favoritism for, like, the traditional uh, explanation of things. But I think that built into that a lot of the time is sort of a defense mechanism where there's an expectation of false prophets and things like that. But, like, when cosmonaut Jesus Christ comes, if you don't have the defense mechanism worked in, then you're like, oh, okay, like, why should I not, 
Whereas, like, you know, if you go by the traditional explanation, like, you're not going to accept cosmonaut Jesus Christ. What other, what other well, I mean, why, what if yeah. he what if he's still Jesus Christ, but he just happens to be flying a UFO? But I, I guess that would be a tip off, right? Um, it would definitely be cause for, like, suspicion. Um, Real Jesus Christ would not fly here on an aircraft of any kind or a spacecraft. Um, well, it really depends on the specifics, I guess, uh, of what the UFO is. But <laughs> what I'm picturing, uh, like, you know, when I imagine Cosmonaut Jesus Christ is, uh, you know, a bit strange. But I guess, like, you know, maybe they'll be pumping, like, LSD signals through, like, our iPhones. So we won't, like, really have the presence of mind to uh you know reject uh what we're seeing it sounds like um, a great but, recipe for an antichrist uh op basically uh, yeah i mean i see everything kind of uh converging towards like uh bowing down to the solid state intelligence so i'm just saying like uh everyone needs to chill with like wanting to be in a <laughs> nanite cloud like it doesn't sound good i don't know what is appealing about this uh, uh yeah yeah i mean <sighs> Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I have my pretty strong, um, objections to the quest for like digital immortality or whatever. Uh, yeah. Um, upload. Yeah. Like upload me into, you know, like, uh, no, thank you. Like, I do not want to be uploaded, uh, into anything. Um, <laughs> please like don't but, upload me. Like don't, I will like, say cybernize me like, in, in these, in these, um, Soviet scientist defense, um, I will at least say that I don't think they were, even though they were describing it, I don't think they were thirsting for it the way that people in Silicon Valley, uh, well, also like over the, the last early, 40 years have thirsted the for early, it. like Internet pioneers in Silicon Valley, like saw the Internet as being like this utopian space. So like in the early like days of like the speculation about, you know, like the machines and like advanced machines, like, uh, you know, there was a lot of utopianism and a lot of hopefulness that like now it's harder to have because we've seen like the reality of the Internet. So. You can definitely, uh, you know, provide that allowance for sure.
But most people are of good will I, thanks to them, believe didn't and talk about yeah there are a few is, things we didn't get to the, yeah but we definitely need to you know that's the real like giants uh trend here is the uh the almasty but we're gonna yes. hold on to that uh but it's coming you know it, it was a uh, difficult decision uh, amazing st- there's an there, amazing story in this book about the almasty uh and uh-huh. yeah it, we're gonna we're gonna talk about it uh down the line but it's, uh, yeah, it, it now, kind of combines uh, it's it sort of yeah at the some somewhere in the intersection between a yeti an abominable snowman and a giant yeah or like a wild man and a bigfoot uh, yeah and a bigfoot yeah um, um there's a pretty yes. fascinating chapter about uh in the new soviet psychic <laughs> yeah. discoveries about a uh, an almasti who was captured in dagestan by a red army unit in 1941 and allegedly uh uh, found guilty of desertion by a military tribunal and shot. <laughs> uh, it really is like a giant of Kandahar story. Uh, it is, it is. Like, um, yeah, it's, I guess that... But the story um, goes a little deeper than that. Um, yeah, um, we're going to go into it maybe when we do, uh, you know, Giants 2, maybe when we... We'll probably do like a Bigfoot Yeti type episode before we do Giants true. 2. I don't know, but true. We'll, we'll see. It, it, we'll, we're going to get to it. Uh, I'm not yeah. going to forget it. I'm going to uh, make sure I know sure you that, were not definitely not gonna we, forget it uh, how, how, could, how could anyone um, uh, nobody but, should ever forget the almasti because yeah. he actually wasn't uh he was not a fascist collaborator or a deserter and um, <laughs> he, um was, uh, he was yeah. a comrade and if they if only they had known about what you know the almasti of kandahar did in 2003 they would have known that he was a comrade yeah uh, and un- and yeah, interestingly, trying... you know, unlike the Almasty in 2003, uh, this Almasty did not try to attack the brave Red Army partisans. Um, wow. Yes. He, well, I think you know, yeah. We got obviously. dolphins on our side. We have giants. We have Almasty. Um, yeah. That giant was a true. Yeah, the, the giant of Kandahar was a true uh, comrade. He really needed to take out. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, they invaded his home with their cave clearing operations. That's probably they why, did. you know, the Pentagon officials have shown uh such aversion to trump pulling out of afghanistan because they know about the giants um you know they're like pulling out all the stops to make sure they've had their finger in the dike down yeah for almost 20 years and yeah they let go they they can't explain it to the public they can't be like listen like if we let up on these giants 
it's going to be the biggest thing that you know we've ever you got we got to keep our eyes on the skies um it'd anyway, be interesting yeah, if the they rails. told that to all the one the one star two star generals that are you know of of certain evangelical persuasions that, you <laughs> yeah know, well the, we, one star the mission general, must yeah. it's, it's not actually about trafficking heroin uh <laughs> yeah uh, no it's not uh yeah not. like geopolitically um, pressuring iran and russia it's actually the, the giants they're yes they're in there and the biggest the worst thing worst order of business wow yeah that's an interesting uh thing because people who might be inclined to yeah like now uh you can actually see like the uh like the the geostrategic uh utility of the giant story because like uh-huh. it gives a reason for someone who like otherwise is like you know sort of a more isolationist uh trump ask persuasion to be like we got to stay there like yeah you know, we yeah. can't just leave these giants absolutely uh, absolutely yeah. anyway that's the real cute clearance uh, yeah the whole point of not doing the almasty is so that we're trying to avoid having like three hour and 40 minute episodes so yeah. <laughs> uh did you want to close out with uh something uh with you know maybe the uh tunguska stuff or I guess we kind of. I'll just. The, I guess like we could mention it briefly. Phaeton, uh, uh, well, yeah, I mean, we could mention it briefly that. Uh, or the ghost that, stuff. I don't know. Yeah, like. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, the ghost stuff. I just wanted to read that as maybe that's a good, that that's a good capstone on kind of the ideas of uh, where this like re- the, the scientific experimenting and uh, religion kind of merging. This is the boldest shot comes near the end of the book um let's see which guy was this oh yeah this is uh Gennady uh Sergeyev uh the Tunguska thing for everyone who was wondering just in some uh you know uh it was a warning shot from space uh that was supposed to warn us uh you know as all it has all the signatures of a thermonuclear detonation it was not a meteor that's you know that's fake news I don't know like yeah, we were trying to figure out how, like, we were supposed to, like, how the ETs would have known that we, like, how they would have thought that we would conclude that it was a warning shot if they didn't give us any sign, because I feel like they must have known that we wouldn't necessarily put it together, um, but I don't know. Yeah, uh, it, it killed so zero people. It was it was blown up over an incredibly remote area yeah, in Siberia. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, uh, yeah, there's definitely some people things that People saw mushroom it, clouds. But, there's too much plausible deniability. I feel like they should have, uh, you know, there's too much uh, freedom of interpretation. I feel like uh, in, in the in the meteor column. So I feel like they they should have like you know given something really yes. clear, you know, uh, if they wanted to truly warn us because the warning has not been heeded. Um, but anyway. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um. So I, assuming I, it was <clears throat> to not use our own nukes. For sure. Yeah, it is a little bit. It, it doesn't seem like the best planned uh, kind of warning shot to humans. Or, but they did say they probably wouldn't do it today because people would assume it was a nuclear attack and then we'd all kill each other. So, hmm. you know, they could only do it before we develop nuclear weapons. Um, hmm. But uh, the OK, the last thing here is like Dr. Gennady Sergeyev um, developed something that he called a time machine. But it's not what you think. It's not a time travel machine. Um, but, um, so he basically, uh, the, the way he describes it. I was just it, imagining a watch, like when you said that, like it's a time machine, but it's not what you think. <laughs> well, no, like, it, uh, it kind of is, but th- okay. this is, this gets a little heady. So he says, okay. Um, all right. He says, let me put it this way. Um, mm, okay. Let's put it this way. 
We've just had emotional problems, both you and I, and however minor, it was emotional. That's good, because even if we don't have any of that again before we leave here, this little emotional clash caused each of us to leave something of ourselves behind. Call it, if you will, an imprint of yourself. You may not see it or feel it or smell it or hear it, but it is here all right, and theoretically it should remain in this spot forever. He had slowed down his speech and was carefully choosing his phraseology as if now lecturing to a high school class. Every human being makes an imprint on his surroundings because we are all at times radiating energy, which is soaked up and stored by items around us. Energy can never be destroyed. Therefore, our energy imprints are preserved, technically for all eternity, along with the imprints of other people who have been in this room. Quite simply, what I have done is to develop a machine that uses liquid crystals, the same crystals used in those fashionable digital watches, to recover such energy from the surface of these objects. It can record and turn into electrical impulses memories of the past, which we have found are stored in every object. We have a long way to go before we'll be able to record and translate accurately such imprints of ourselves left behind in the void of time. But my machine is beginning in the right direction. Um, and he goes on to say um, that since thought is energy, um, the human body can transmit electrical impulses to this medium, the vapor. What happens then is that our thoughts change the structure of the molecules in the vapor, which then becomes a bank or repository of human thoughts. Um, we have proven in tests that at a room where there is a reasonable amount of humidity will retain human thought for up to four days in such vapor banks. A person who has been thinking intensely, even for a very short time, will leave these thoughts in the vapor banks. After four days, this vapor settles. We have shown that the water, as it lands on the objects, leaves the imprint of the thought again in the form of energy. This was demonstrated using Kirlian photography. The imprint is, of course, invisible to the eye, but it is shown clearly using the Kirlian technique. We covered clean coins with pieces of plastic, then pressed on the plastic with our fingers. Our fingers never touched the coins, yet an imprint was clearly shown on them and remained for four days. Um, from these experiments, we've determined that every human being leaves an energetical imprint as well as an informational imprint on objects that he touches or is close to. Every object around us has magnetic qualities. When it absorbs energy, it changes the magnetic characteristics of its molecules. It is then that it becomes a natural magnetic recorder. We are at the stage where we can recover uh, the electrical information. Now all we have to do is decode it. Um, a person under tremendous stress, facing a crisis or suffering great fear, can increase his electrical output 10,000 times. In this way, man can, over a brief period, record the information of his entire life on a nearby object. By brief, I mean in a split second. If you have an object that a man has had for a long time, a favorite book, for instance, you will find that it has already been affected by his electrical impulses. It will contain the thoughts and emotional imprints of the man. All objects have this information of other people, of other times. That is why I say that I may well be able to explain the mystery of whether people have a soul. Energy does leave the body when a person dies, and it carries off all the information, all the history of that person. Perhaps that can be regarded as a soul. Once my machine finds and records it, and we interpret the energy signals, we might have a complete record of someone long dead. In fact, I believe that this is what may make ghosts possible. There, may, there must be cases where the energy does not become assimilated into other objects. Perhaps all this energy, this information of a dead person, is just contained in a room or an area, and through some process we do not yet understand, becomes visible to a person. It is feasible. 
Then, for a moment, he lapsed into silence. Then, looking up, he postulated that this all may explain the theory of reincarnation. The human brain picks up signals from imprints left hundreds of thousands of years ago. The person's thoughts are then influenced by the electrical messages left by the dead. A house in which someone lived will still contain all the information in the person's life. It is very possible, he was convinced, that a person can, perhaps even at birth, pick up the past information and then regard it as his own causing the belief that he has been reincarnated. Um, okay, so, yeah, he says, man has always cloaked what he doesn't know in mystery. We are now scientifically examining these mysteries, including ghosts, and they will not be mysteries for too much longer. Hmm. Yeah, I definitely have heard this uh, ghost theory uh, before, um, like the idea of like the impressions being left. I guess, like, uh, you know, this is, yeah, it'd be interesting to trace. I really honestly don't, like, fully know, uh, like, how these ideas have developed. Because I guess in the 19th century, I mean, first, obviously, you have the idea that, you know, depending, like, you know, uh, definitely it's an idea in Islam. There are ideas in Islam, like, of, uh, you know, I just use Islam as an example of, like, you know, an older religious tradition. Uh, mm-hmm. It's the one that I know the best. But there definitely are ideas of, like... Uh, the Balzac or like the grave, you know, like sort of being an in-between state, but there also are ideas of, you know, just you have no consciousness, there are no ghosts, and like, you know, ghosts are, like if you see, see a ghost, maybe it's a djinn or something, but like, uh, you know, then the dead are going to come back probably in body, uh, you know, on Judgment Day. Uh, mm. Like, uh, you know, that's a, but there's there's a range of views, but then I feel like in the sort of spiritualist craze of the 19th century, there was maybe an idea of like a spirit world. And yeah. that was like, you know, a whole thing of like spirit photography of like photographing ghosts and that type of stuff. Like yeah. uh, there was a whole craze around that. And like, uh, so I feel like the whole idea of like energetic, like impressions on like ectoplasm. Like I remember hearing yeah. one story like of, uh, again, like it's kind of like a accommodation of this idea that ghosts aren't like, you know, really sentient or whatever. They're like these impressions that are left. Uh, mm. You know, it's a sort of a whittling away of like the this idea, you know, like uh, maybe you can't talk to the dead per se. Maybe you could through the aid of some kind of technology recording. Their idea. Although I guess maybe their thoughts and their, you know, their personality in some way could be held over, but maybe it will be like a shadow of itself. Isn't I don't there, know. I, I feel like, isn't there a type of radio device that like you can order online that you can go through frequencies and people claim they can hear ghosts talking? Um, well, there's definitely EVP, like, uh, yeah, like definitely like, uh, that might you be know, it. you like, if usually you run like an audio recorder in like a haunted house or whatever, and then you can kind of hear things. Actually, I think, you know, Thomas Edison tried to build a phone, uh, like a spirit phone. I remember that you could use, um, to communicate with, uh, you know, like, uh, people in the spirit world, people who uh, are dead. Uh, it um, didn't work out though. I guess not, um, since we don't have one. Um, but yeah, that could possibly be um, an episode. I don't know. I don't know. Like what, maybe what maybe we could buy one. Uh, you know, and try were. it out. Yeah, it's a little spooky, but um, yeah. I remember reading like Amazon reviews. You'd want to take ago. a lot of protection. Yeah, Spirit Box. You could buy one for uh, sixty nine dollars on. Oh, ghost, Spirit Box is like a. A spirit yeah, oh, box is a totally different thing. That's oh, when like you wait, that, like put yes. headphones on and you like you know 
listen to impressions like you know uh that are coming in like sort of weird like audio glitches and then like you sort of speak yeah that's a whole interesting like mode of channeling it's uh yeah it's interesting um but yeah like uh actually one of the uh uh, the whole idea of like the reincarnation reminded me of the uh, the concept of uh, baruz mm-hmm. uh, in in Islam or uh, baruz, uh, which is like a you know kind of a projection. It's called like the idea that like you can kind of uh, be the reincarnation or like you know again there's like a huge um, you know uh, taboo or. Uh, you know, aversion to the idea of reincarnation in Islam or like true metempsychosis, like some like Hulat, like Shia groups, like would promote this idea. Mm-hmm. But uh, there was an idea of Baruz that you can, um, you know, uh, sort of that you can, you can, your uh, persona can be sort of impressed upon. Uh, it literally means like projection. Mm. Um, like uh, you can, y- your soul can be like uh, destroyed or like overcome by like a, a manifestation of a past figure um wow. be it like uh you know and in some like really extreme cases people will claim this of of the prophet i think that might be what um the uh the uh vladimir Rykov, uh, the ahmadiyya uh, oh, claim okay. no uh i was gonna say that's what the ahmadiyya claim uh about their founder oh, okay, uh, with, okay. with muhammad but there is also like you know slightly more uh uh orthodox if still like you know um a bit like you know very uh sophistic you know very uh you know uh maybe one could say mystical um expressions of this usually having to do with like past masters uh or, or figures like that interesting um yeah interesting. Wow. it's uh so yeah. the whole idea of like projection uh it, it doesn't remind like a as sort of an in-between uh, uh idea of reincarnation it's really kind of the same thing like trying to have to reconcile this idea like uh this idea of reincarnation to uh, a different paradigm they come up with something that's kind of similar um yeah but uh yeah, yeah. um yeah so there's but, uh, of course, there's yeah. a lot lot going lot going on there um, um yeah i mean i've definitely i i wonder like uh if that does originate i guess it originates kind of around the same time but yeah the idea i mean that's like the now pretty much conventional like horror movie paranormal show like ghost hunter interpretation of ghosts i think that like you know a powerful or uh, extreme impression uh you know emotional state upon death or something yeah oh i was gonna say also kind of reminds you know we're talking um during the q a episode about you know adrenochrome or whatever like why would you you know how people always ignore this energetic aspect of like a ritual that if what some of these soviet parapsychologists were saying was true about like energetic transfer and things like that then maybe sacrificing somebody um well like the idea, ritualized abuse like it does confer some kind of energetic power to you i mean you. i definitely believe in the idea of emotion as like you know i mean this is like affect theory you know like the idea of energetic transfer like through like feelings like i think that's definitely true like you know you can mm. pick up on other people's emotions like you probably can like through like you know and maybe this could there's even something materialistic about this like the way that you interact with an object like you know, I think that there probably is some kind of material substrate that picks up like the uh, way that you interact with an object that you treasure or uh, one that you despise or something like that. You know, I think of again, like I'm going to just use an Islamic example, like, uh, you know, pictures. Uh, we have like these uh, 
you know, if you have like an old miniature painting or something and a lot mm. of the time, uh, you know, people see like the faces of the figures and the miniature being blotted out or something. And, a lot, mm. uh, you know, a lot of the time the conventional explanation is like, oh, you know, Muslims, as we know, they all hate images. Uh, yeah. So they were obviously trying to destroy these images. But a lot of the time. Uh, what people find is that there's a particular focus on certain figures, you know, not all the faces will be blotted out, but, uh, sometimes like the faces of like beloved figures or the faces of despised figures will be the ones that are particularly blotted out. So the way that the people like were looking at the painting and kind of like rubbing and interacting with it, uh, caused like a very specific type of abrasion. Uh, and that's like a material trace of sort of a feeling in a way that's Mm. like a very like, uh, concrete example Uh, I think there's like subtler ways this can happen, but yeah, I definitely believe like in this sensibility and I, uh, you know, and I, I think that, that, uh, you know, yeah, I'm sense, I, I'm, uh, I'm partial to the idea of a Peruse, uh, and, uh, you know, in, in some, in some cases, um, like, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, like, uh, uh, this is one crazy example, but, uh, uh, Nurbaksh was one guy who, uh, uh, was really like a, um, a big proponent of this, uh, Muhammad, uh, Nirbakhsh. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, he, yeah, he proclaimed himself the Messiah in 1423 and he was a big uh, proponent of Baruz. Uh, and he claimed, uh, you know, um, like, uh, this is, uh, from, uh, Shahzad Bashir's, uh, Sufi bodies, um, which I remember, uh, had a good treatment of this. Um, like, uh, so, uh, the claim, uh, was difficult to justify, in the face of the fact that most Muslims in uh, Nirbakh's time believed that the Messiah was an, was an identifiable historical person named Muhammad al-Mahdi, who had gone uh, into heavenly hiding in the year uh, 874, of course, you know, the hidden imam. Yeah. Uh, Nirbakh's solution to this problem was a concept that he called projection, according to which uh, the Messiah was a, uh, not a long-lived heavenly figure, but someone like himself whose body had come into the world through a normal birth. But with spiritual maturation, his body had become host to the spirits of Jesus, Muhammad, the expected Messiah, and many great Sufi masters of the past. Mm. Um, so uh, I don't like necessarily know if uh, like hosting is like the but like yeah oh, like uh, his uh, weaker spirit is like overcome by the more powerful spirits of uh, of these people. Like uh, hosting kind of uh, suggests indwelling, which I guess is kind of what happens, but it has sort of a, uh, you know, like, uh, that sense of like, kind of like projection or almost like a Kirlian photography type of sense, uh, where like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, or a double exposure type thing where like, uh, one image is being overlaid like by another, um, a spectral but, uh, overlay. Yeah. 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 But, uh, anyway, yeah, again, mm-hmm. like a bit of a tangent, but yeah, <laughs> I, I think that that idea is, uh, is tenable. I, I, I like it pretty well. Um, you know, I think there's something to that. Um, I think like, you know, maybe there's also something to the, the world of the dead or the idea of like dead consciousnesses as, as existing and, uh, as souls as being more than just like energetic, uh, impressions. But, uh, I definitely think that the idea of affect as like kind of a, a force or, or something that, uh, you know, impresses upon some kind of continuum is, uh, is legitimate. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure maybe we'll, maybe in later episodes, we're definitely not done exploring the world of like psi phenomena. Um, no, we're not. And I'm sure we'll circle back. <laughs> maybe we'll, not. we'll dip through a few of these, uh, uh, case studies of like ESP that are in both of these books, which, uh, seem to have positive outcomes Though they say maybe the very last, uh, just paragraph I'll read from the Soviet encyclopedia of science. 
and this is a good place to leave off because I think it's kind of where we're at. Um, one of the reasons for like official, uh, you know, distrust in like the academic and scientific world is the fact that parapsychological events are not reproducible. That is, they do not fit into the pattern of demands made to prove them to be scientific fact. Parapsychologists explain that parapsychological phenomena originate in some special conditions of the psyche. They cannot be produced at will, are extremely unstable, and disappear as soon as outer and inner conditions prove unfavorable. This, then, makes interpretation of parapsychological phenomena very difficult. Some psychic occurrences, it seems, do take place. However, recognition of their existence is prevented in view of an absence of information about the channels over which information is transmitted. So, um, kind of sounds a lot like what the DIA and like SRI ended up coming up with in the 70s and the 80s, where they initially found that, I mean, I think that DI thing we read um, a couple episodes ago said that, you know, it works and it is reproducible, but then it seems like they ran into this problem of it not being like you can't systematize it the same way you can yeah, you things can't like computer it. technology. That, I think the problem is that you can't weaponize it for like evil purposes. Yeah, like, maybe in some like, maybe in some kind of a spy sense, like you could find one particular like remote viewing expert that might be able to do some stuff. But it's like you can't just go out and train a battalion of remote viewers to like go and do or just let everybody in the world like. It's exactly. not it's something... like very fickle and not like reliable, but that yeah. doesn't mean like just because something is like that's like one standard for like to say that everything that isn't like reproducible or measurable in a very particular way, like is not like has no reality to it like that, you know, of, uh, yeah, obviously of, it's just like that's one whack. very particular. Yeah, I agree with that paragraph, but that is is whack. Yeah, um, yeah. So but, I yeah. think and I think maybe that was the question. I think I brought it up many, many episodes ago of like. Maybe might have been the first episode when uh, uh, the the question of like why um, if Silicon Valley if this remote viewing ESP all this technology that Silicon Valley was kind of um was really a game changer and like was had these amazing abilities that they claim like why aren't we all doing it today why instead are we using satellite technology and GPS and like you know phone computers and the internet and things like that and i think it's actually it maybe it doesn't have to be that clear cut that like oh well that that's proof that it you know it probably wasn't real um that was an argument used to maybe advance the the argument that so a lot of this was like a psyop like a cover for building the internet which maybe it was but i think they can definitely do two things at the same time and i think maybe it's like they pursued both these avenues and while they did find convincing evidence that there's like something there with all this parapsychological stuff, uh, you couldn't. Um, it, it and it's actually it's very similar to the things with like Tesla and Edison because Tesla came up with prototypes for like wireless energy transfer, right? Isn't that how the old legend goes? Um, that, yes. Yeah, the but legend. then Edison. Yeah. And, and then there actually, was like, I read that Tesla uh, had a version of, or he he was the first maybe to observe. The phenomenon of Kirlian photography, like you know, the 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 way that you yeah can yeah of lights. Uh, the yeah, the Soviet psychic discoveries book mentions the famous experiment where he ran like eighty thousand volts through his body to prove that uh, you know I don't know humans had it, it proved something to do with like how we're energetically charged beings or something. You know, it was like he did it in a way where it's like they thought it would obviously kill him, but uh, I forget exactly what. 
what it did prove. But he had all these ideas about wireless energy transfer that uh, it feels like just now are like maybe being toyed around with. But that was not um, you couldn't own that. But you could own Thomas Edison's infrastructure for distributing electricity and you could meter it so you could charge people money for it, et cetera, et cetera. So um, in a way, it was almost like the necessities of um, the market of capital required that we, you know, but it doesn't it's like just how that didn't necessarily mean that Tesla's. Uh, approaches were were not real or false. Um, perhaps like the way this is all shaken out, um, it doesn't mean that things like ESP or remote viewing are totally not real, but it's harder to uh, control the economy with them, maybe. <laughs> Or you yeah. know, run an empire off of them. You could use them maybe in a in a tangential kind of uh, you know secret kind of side way, but to make it yeah. the entire basis of your economy, um, it simply is. Uh, but you know, I mean, they I own all the satellites. They own the, all the infrastructure. They they got yeah. us right where we want them now. If we all became like remote viewer like psi warriors, then maybe they couldn't control us. Well, yeah. Uh, well, I definitely think like, yeah, as you said, I definitely don't think that it was all like a psyop or like, you know, to cover for building the Internet. I think that there definitely was real interest in this, both on the American side and on uh, the Soviet yeah. side, as we've kind of said before, um, like a real avid interest in this. But yeah. of course, Soviets yeah, weren't think... building the Internet, so they didn't necessarily have like it's not clear what they would have been covering up if they were doing it, except just to like psyop us. Like, yeah, but you know. uh, but yeah, I uh I did hear recently uh, a suggestion that, like, uh, from someone who was interested in uh, psi abilities, um, uh, there's a suggestion that, um, and we'll remote viewing and that type of thing, there was a suggestion that uh, the internet and, like, being around uh, smartphones and stuff uh, interferes in uh, psi abilities and makes it harder to, to develop. Oh, my God. Uh, so maybe actually, uh, you know, there, this, is, this, is, this serves a double function of okay. having kind I, of the surveillance abilities and also suppressing, uh, you know, psionics or, or that type of stuff. Uh, which, you know, may, I, uh, may I just read one more extremely apropos paragraph that yes, is chillingly related to that? So in that same thing where I was talking about like this with the Soviet Academy of Sciences was saying, it says here that like there was a um, there was a speech, I think, in 1973 where Brezhnev uh, gave a kind of cryptic warning about he said uh, he said, the reason and conscience of humanity dictate the necessity of erecting an insurmountable barrier to the development of such weapons. Um, and he cl he was referring to the research and development of new kinds of weapons, quote, more terrifying than existing nuclear weapons. And a little further down, um, basically, you know, there were DIA and CIA reports uh, freaking out about, like, what did he mean by that? Were they close <laughs> to perfecting laser beams and stuff? Um, but then it quotes here a U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency report, which says... Other Soviet tests included inducing the subject with anxiety associated with suffocation and the sensation of a dizzying blow to the head. Some Western followers of psychic phenomena research are concerned, for example, with the detrimental effects of subliminal perception techniques being targeted against the U.S. or allied personnel in nuclear missile sites. The subliminal message could be carried by television signals or by telepathic means. The political applications of focusing mental influences on an enemy through hypnotic telepathy have 
surely occurred to the Soviets. Control and manipulation of the human consciousness must be considered a powerful goal. Mm. Um, It must be considered a powerful goal that we think the Soviets are doing or a goal (laughs) that we should accomplish, basically. Um, Yes. That that seemed to in, in in the long list of categories of like the the Pentagon and CIA freaking out over using the excuse of like freaking out over something they think the Soviets are doing to go and do it ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, it does make you wonder a little bit. Was the development of the internet in one way? I mean, that would be kind of ironic if of SRA's like two most kind of um, notable projects that one would be. Um, designed to suppress the revelations of the other project. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That they had to build the internet because they realized it was the only way to maintain psychological control and maybe, yeah, who knows about these radio waves and wireless frequencies eh, and 4G 5G. and 5G. Uh, if anybody the 5G, on the Q&A yeah. wants to ask a 5G question uh, yeah, for so the end of this month. Yeah, being get... able to levitate uh, too much 5G and you'll never develop the ability to levitate Uh and such your uh, pineal gland will yeah you were into that for a while like decalcifying the the pineal gland i was kind of interested uh, in it. i just find that you know it's weird that they took iodide iodine out of all the salt like most of the salt you buy now um when they hmm. used to just like put it in there and like why don't they Wait, put it is in there water no more iodine in the salt you can buy it at grocery stores but a lot of salt now doesn't uh to supply iodide, um, which is just mm. kind of like, hmm. And, you know, it's a deficiency that never gets talked about. And then, mm. you know, fluoride, uh, not going to go on a whole thing there, but, uh, mm, you know, fluoride, uh, it's only useful as a topical agent uh, <laughs> to calcify teeth. It doesn't actually help you to drink it. And if you're drinking it, then maybe, I mean, maybe, uh, yeah, you go some things with that. But, uh uh, interesting that Stanley Kubrick used that as a joke, um, but now it's used to like make fun of conspiracy theorists. Uh, when in fact, like maybe we were putting the fluoride in the water. Anyways, um, <laughs> we'll leave it there for now. I think we're almost at uh, three hours. Uh, uh, we, tr- we tried. Um, we tried. But, well, uh, we, yeah. Here we go. Three hours. This is all yeah, Laura, so a couple times. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, people. Uh, yeah, uh, I don't think people will necessarily mind uh, the longer length. Uh, it's only for, uh, you know, uh, our own, uh, I guess, like a uh, sense of restraint or discipline that we try. Yes, to, to keep it, it feels uh, bad shorter, to go over but... three hours. I'm well, just going to say that it. By... unless it's a mm, very big episode. I think that by trying to aim for two hours, like that's what is keeping us to three hours. You know, like yes. if we were aiming for three hours, like we would be going for four. Yes. So, yes. you know, it's working in a way, uh, yeah. you know, yeah. we don't act necessarily keep to it, but all right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we'll, uh, <laughs> Anyways, we'll, um, we'll, we'll stop there. All right. We'll, uh, um, we'll, we'll catch you all next time um, for uh, buckle up. Cause it, Contra 3 is coming up next oh, week yes, on the public right. frequency. Um, yeah. That's going to be a tough one to hold on two under three hours, but uh, we'll, we'll just, we'll yeah. see how it goes. That's We're aiming important. for two. It's going to be yeah. a two hour episode. Uh, yeah. It's it, and, but uh, it, it, it's, it's a Quino level in a lot of ways. So, um, yeah. but anyways, yeah. Um, until, until next time, I don't know, protect your aura.
and stay vigilant. Yeah, protect your aura. <laughs> watch out for Almasti. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, look up to the skies and ponder uh, Phaeton. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah. And, um, uh, I guess uh, yeah. If someone hands you. Uh, a banknote. Look at it very carefully to make sure it's not a blank piece of paper torn from a school book or something. Uh, and yeah. Beria asks you to uh, gain access to a classified <laughs> yeah. military installation. It is not Beria. Yeah, if you see Beria, like just really scrutinize him. Uh, and uh, if it is Beria, you know, let him in by all means. Yeah. But um, and do yeah exactly. If you see Beria or a psychic impression of Beria. Uh, you know, I leave that to your discretion, but, uh, you definitely should, you know, be careful, uh, and sort of, uh, take a moment to listen to your thoughts and see if, uh, you hear, uh, anyone repeating, uh, that they are Beria, uh, in your mind. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. So with that, until next time, dear Watch comrades, um, stay vigilant. Peace. Всем чужой мир обходит странник, позабывший дом свой, не находит места, он себе нигде, нет покоя в сердце. Наяву и во сне Он бредет на север На восток, на юг Но один лишь ветер Преданный его друг Он не